Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Occasionalist. It's October, and you know what that means. It is time for The Occasionalist Fright Fest. I am Adam Chemielewski, and you know him, Matthew Pagel. He's on the other side of the phone, and we are ready to kick this off. Citizen Pegs, how are we doing today, bro? I'm doing great, dude, and I am really fucking psyched for this month's, uh, for this year's uh, Fright Fest. Um, I'll, I'll let you do the whole intro and everything, but I'm really fucking excited we're going this direction. Oh, I am very excited about it too, dude. Um, just to let everybody know, we're going to be talking about monsters this month. It's called the Monster Month. We've done John Carpenter. We've done horror trilogies and stuff. We're focusing in on fucking monsters. Can, very, very happy to do. Oh, very, dude, I, I'm really excited. This this was this introductory episode was already a lot of fun. So I can't wait as we as we get uh, further into the month. But can I make a suggestion real quick? You bet, dude. The, the pun is right there for us. It's Fright Fest for Monster Mash. Fright Fest for my, yeah, there you go. Yeah, you know, I actually, okay, I happen to kind of like the Monster Mash, or at least like the first 30 seconds of it before yeah. it just becomes, you know, I like the drum beats and everything. I think they're, they're like, the you know, the Monster Mash, the first couple of those are pretty cool. And um, I'm not, then after that, you know, it, it kind of gets a little repetitive, just as me as an almost 40 year old guy oh, as a kid, I love the listen, shit out of that song. It, it is, <laughs> it is one of those songs you, for your, for your Halloween playlist, for your Halloween party, just one time. Do not put yeah. it on there five or six times. Just one time. That's it. Yeah. Early that early song for the night, and then just le- let it go. <laughs> oh, I completely agree with you. And um, we've been hearing it. It makes its way onto the radio out here and stuff already. Like I've kind of heard it in passing. So I mean, even the radio is jumping in on this monster mash thing, and hopefully they're not trying to turn it into the next running up that hill. And I'm not going to lie, it's going to be the last time I mentioned running up. That I hill hope so for, for for a while. Yeah, <laughs> I hope I mean, so. God, yeah, me too. I'm even me personally. I'm getting sick of uh, talking about it. But uh, yeah, dude, Fright Fest 2022. I'm glad we changed the name over to Fright Fest. Um, you would not believe how many times I've seen the phrase "spooky season" yes. in the last like <laughs> seven yes. to ten days. <laughs> like my God, there it was. It was one of those things. It like I, I really don't care that much, but like the the way spooky season sticks out, like something that is purely a creation of hallmark or purely yeah. a creation of of you know filling the company it's just i'm like ah, we got to do something we got to name it something else yeah you know i noticed like amusement parks are jumping on the spooky season banner and mm-hmm. i think that was the point in time for us to throw it out the window yep. like and like out here we don't even have the cool amusement parks like Cedar Point and everything. We have Knott's Berry Farm. And I mean, there's Disney, but like, I don't, Disney's a whole other fucking thing. But like, I noticed like uh, Knott's Berry Farm, Universal, I think Six Flags have all adopted the spooky season yeah. banner in some way, shape, or form and stuff. Right. Which, uh, yeah, we don't want to be a part of that or, or anything right. like that. So we try to amuse, but in no way, shape, or form are we an amusement park. So, <laughs> not yet. <laughs> yeah, not yet, anyway. So, anyway, before. Before we jump into the heart of today's discussion, we're going to do a little bit of some 80s house cleaning. I know there is a cocaine joke in there somewhere. I'm still coming off, coming in hot off a work incident to think of it at the moment. But um, I'll, start, I'll start off really quick. Um, I just wanted to let everybody know, and you as well, Matt, that I, I mentioned this before. I've been reading The Running Man, the book and everything. Mm-hmm. We were talking about the movies, um, the movie a couple weeks ago, and how Edgar Wright is going to be in charge of like helming this new reboot. And I got to tell you this could be something really special. Like there's a lot of variation between the book and the movie. It's more or less like the way the game is played. Like there's still a game. A couple of the names are changed in the book, but the book is like 
they're just setting Ben Richards loose into the country and everybody is in on it. Like you can report him and get money. You can Mm -hmm. try to hunt him and get money. So I think that it's ripe for a lot of cool things provided Edgar Wright and company handles it the right way, which I wouldn't see any reason that they wouldn't. I just feel we might end up waiting on this about, about two years or so. Like the, Unfortunately, like bullet train, which it just comes right to my mind, like because there, there's a similar kind of element of bullet train as there mm-hmm. is in the book Running Man. Once we kind of like, you know, forget about that movie, which I'm sure we will very, very soon. I could see this Running Man getting some real traction because the whole thing in bullet train is like, oh, Brad Pitt's a hitman. He's on a bullet train where everybody's a hitman. So it's the running man book follows a similar format where it's like, Hey, there's somebody here and everybody's trying to get them. So once we kind of move beyond bullet train and that whole idea of just like one guy and every single person's out to get to him, I think that the running man is going to do really well in the theater. And I actually feel that it might end up being a little fresh, um, especially with having such a long wait in between the release of the running man movie and bullet train. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Um, I I wouldn't worry about a David a David Leitch movie being that big of a cultural footprint <laughs> of any kind. Appar- I haven't seen Bullet Train. Apparently, it's totally fun, but like, you know, you'll forget about it like as soon as you as soon as you go home. Yeah, it does have that very fun yet very forgettable kind of vibe to it, and like I do like I like Brad Pitt, and I actually think old Brad Pitt is pretty cool he's done a lot of good stuff as a as an older guy i um i'm just not like thinking that that movie is going to have such an effect on me where no. it's like oh my god i gotta stop everything and bullet train is going to become my new obsession like the way some other movies do yeah no i i 100 exactly yes exactly so but yeah i i'm like you said i i'm very very excited for it, it feels like the running man is in the correct hands Yes, it does, dude. And I got to tell you that they could easily take the first hundred pages of that book and crop it down into either five minutes of screen time or if there's ever a later on dumbed down for short attention span people in the future, that book or the first hundred pages could easily be 30. Dude, you're like in it for 100 pages where you know every single detail of what Ben Richards has to do to get on this game. And it's not like there's any, like, it's not like he has to like do something like, Oh my God, I got to beat this guy in a race to get on the game. We are following him literally through the paperwork filling out process, the physical process, the, the waiting for him to find out the results, like everything. So hopefully when this does get remade, they condense all that down. Yeah. My God, a hundred, the book is 400 pages long. The first hundred page, 25% of it. You need and he hasn't even ran yet. It, well, you know, Richard Bachman is noted for his uh, very verbose um, descriptions of what's going on. He's a lot like Stephen King in that in that way. Yeah, I know. It's almost like they're the exact same. I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, dude. So what um, cleanup did you have to do from the 80s? Uh, yeah, just a, a couple of things real quickly. First one is real quick. Um, we, we had talked about, uh, I had included in the soundtrack, uh, Scorpion Song, The Zoo, from mm-hmm. 1980. And you, we're so I knew they weren't an American band, like I, I knew that much. Um, but they're not English, believe it or not, um, <clears throat> which would seem to fit, you know, like a, a heavy metal band from the seventies. You kind of just yeah. assume they're English. They're German. They're from Hanover. Really? Um, and they would have been doing they would have been doing heavy metal around the same time 
literally almost concurrent with when Black Sabbath was experimenting with with heavy metal in the, in the late 60s. So you could really look at Scorpions as sort of like one of the first two heavy metal bands, period. Oh, hell yeah, dude. Number one, I did not know that. For some reason, I naturally assume Britain. Same here. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And like for them to be in on it that early, I mean, that's you're right. That is taking you to like the earlier formative years of metal and everything. And if I knew I figured Black Sabbath definitely, but I didn't know that the Scorpions were in on it that early either. Yep, they they formed they formed in 1965, and then like really they start they really start making you know publishing music like more like in like 1969 1970. So I mean they were right there with Black Sabbath making what would become heavy metal. Yeah, dude, they were getting together when the Beatles were like still together. That's yep. really damn. That's really impressive. And yep, stuff. that's yeah. awesome. Their their oldest members are like in their 80s. Holy shit. <laughs> like early 80s but, but wow yeah god damn dude like yeah it's for some reason when i think the scorpions like i just don't think going back that far but that's that's really fucking cool and like mm-hmm. i'm happy to hear that because it's it's always good to i guess like you know know somebody else was kind of doing it other than black sabbath and stuff because sure, yeah I, I personally feel, and and this is just from watching like several VH1 top 100 lists um, when I was like just out of high school, people were trying to like really like throw Led Zeppelin as kind of like this originator of metal and stuff. And I, I just never really saw it, Mm-mm. to be honest with you. Like, I, I mean, they if you want to call it hard rock, like, I guess, but I'm not even willing like to like jump on that label so quickly. And, uh, you know, knowing that there's somebody else out there other than Sabbath makes me happy. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and one quick thing that I, I noticed when I was um, when I was pulling sound clips, I, I mentioned that I when uh, we're doing our movie pitches, I mentioned that I picked this city. This city, uh, it's now called Zelesnogorsk, and it used to be called Krasnoyarsk 26. I noticed that I, I said I picked that city for a reason, and I'll tell you why. And I never fucking did, um, <laughs> like it, like a fucking moron. But um, it has one of Zelesnogorsk when it was excuse me when it was Krasnoyarsk 26 has one of my favorite flags, maybe my favorite flag of all time. I actually included it in my poster. Um, it is a plain red flag. With the yellow Russian bear tearing open an atom, tearing open the nucleus of an atom, that was like the city flag. Really? Yeah. Holy shit! I didn't know what that. I didn't know that that's what that was and everything on the on the post and stuff. That is yeah. really fucking cool, actually. It's it's awesome. The flag, like it, especially seeing like a full size flag of it, it's pretty fucking awesome. Like like this bear ripping open the nucleus. You see all of the. Um, you know the um, the orbit trails for the uh, for the protons and electrons like orbiting around it, but like that was you know as if you weren't aware of what was going on at Krasnoyarsk twenty six, um, nuclear research by the Russians, and here's the flag to prove it. Oh wow, dude, that's and that is actually a really awesome design, and I can see how that would be a very high ranking flag of yours and stuff. Like, yeah, that is almost as cool as like the Chicago flag, which is one of my uh, one of my favorites. Oh, sh- Chicago flag is way way up there. Yeah, but you know, if I, I'll tell you what, if they uh, if they threw a bear on there, splitting open an atom, or at the very least, splitting open a, I don't know Portillo sausage, and then I think yeah. the, the Chicago flag would would yeah. take an even higher jump up. No, you are totally. I'm not going to lie. That's actually what I was going to say. I was going to say Chicago style hot dog, but Portillo sausage is as Chicago as uh, drinking an old style. Yeah. Drinking an old style, uh, watching a losing sports team. You got that right. (laughs) Uh, And that's, that's that's all I have right there. 
Very nice, dude. No, I'm glad you uh, glad you shared that and everything. I do dig that uh, flag design. Awesome stuff. And we are going to right now take that dive into the Monster Month or Pray Fest for Monster Mash. <laughs> so, all right. So in this episode, what we're going to do, I'm sorry, a hoagie is kind of teeing off on me being a idiot right now. The guy who's sleeping deal. notices the door is closed, starts teeing off. And he's still like... <laughs> The meowing thing is just like insane because he I'll, can't. You know, just for just for this episode, I'll go ahead and replace all of his meows with like Godzilla roars. Hell yeah! No, that's what, but yeah. Not really. I'm not, I'm not gonna yeah. do that. But oh, that would be awesome because that's like that's kind of the inside joke here in the house amongst Jess and myself. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's what he's doing, just roaring his ass off. So, all right. So what we're gonna do here in this episode, we're gonna take a walk through the different eras of monster movies. And according to Wikipedia, there are four of them: the early monster films, the Kaiju era, the Spielberg era, and the modern era. And um, I will tell you, the Spielberg era covers a lot of fucking territory. Um, literally, did not expect that to go from the seventies to to the 90s mm-hmm. but um it does make all the sense in the world then we're going to do some recommendations and then we are bringing back let's fix the fix this shit for a very very special monster edition of we're going to fix some stuff which i'm very excited about because oh, i have same a here. lot of same opinions here. on what we're going to be fixing so until we get there we're going to start off with a little bit of some warm-up and uh, just as the opening question is uh, monsters have been a staple of cinema for over 100 years why do you think that that is i think that there's there's two main things at work for one for the i mean there's more than this but I'll, I'll i'll sort of distill it down to two main things at work one for the filmmakers and one for the audience for mm-hmm. the filmmakers monsters are really excellent stand-ins for any kind of bigger topic and while there are plenty of monster movies that are not um, sort of analogous for anything else, almost all of them are. Like, mm-hmm. the, be it Godzilla, be it um, a giant ant, a huge woman, whatever. Like, there are, the, those creatures are there for a very particular reason. So it is sort of, you know, it is sort of a good way for, a, you know, for a director, a writer, you know, I'll just call them the filmmakers in, in, at large here. Um, it is a good way for them to explore certain topics. I mean, like take take the xenomorph in Aliens in all mm-hmm. in the Alien franchise, but very particularly in the first movie, it is there's a reason why that alien looks like a giant fucking penis. There's a reason why it impregnates it force impregnates the victims and rapes them and forces them to give birth. Like this is all a very intentional rape allegory. And mm-hmm. in very in very specifically, who do we see get raped first? Oh, it's um, it's isn't it a guy? It's a man. It's the, yeah, it's yeah. the man. That yeah. that was the whole point was right. that they were going to do they were going to rape a man, and it is a very in your face way to sort of to sort of explore this rape allegory. And obviously, there's more to it than that. But that was like one of the very intentional reasons for why the xenomorph looked like it looked and why it did what it did. Yeah, definitely, dude. Yeah, 100%. Like, the the looks, everything, the action, even the, um, you know, what would be a unwanted child coming out mm-hmm. of somebody's big, puffy stomach and everything, that is 100%. You got that right with the allegory on that. And even just in general with monsters and stuff, which is one of the things that I had, is that these are such a universal allegory for fucking sure. And like, mm-hmm. definitely. And I don't want to fuck up the great answer that you just gave, but oh, just know okay. that you and I were thinking on the same <laughs> right. boat here and stuff when it comes to the allegories. So is that the, um, 
both for the filmmakers and the audience, or I'll, do you have the audience one too? I'll, I'll judge my audience one right here. Um, okay. It is it's in it's kind of the similar boat, but um, for the audience, like these, any kind of monster is a is a vehicle to map our own fears. Mm-hmm. Um, you can, and we we've talked about it. We've talked about it at least once before on the podcast, but like off the podcast. I know we've had a couple of discussions about it about how you can take a creature like the alien from the thing. You take the titular thing. And right. map all sorts of things that you want to on it. You can talk. It could be. You could look at the look at the the creature and go. This is about imposter syndrome. You know. I I don't. You know. I personally don't. You know. I have the fear of not belonging, and that you know that is something that could you could see in the in the thing. Um, mm-hmm. Body dysmorphia. You know. You don't like the way your body looks. You think it's ugly. Whatever. You can see that in the thing. The the fear of isolation. You can see that in the thing. Uh, we've we've talked about the trans allegory that you could see in the thing. Like there, are, monsters are just a great vehicle for us to sort of, regardless of what the filmmakers are saying, also explore our own fears and sort of get into touch with what we what scares us. Oh yeah, dude. Like yes, they allow for you know because art is like one of these deals where it is you know, it's open to interpretation and stuff. And like, yes, there are things that like the director is going for that the writer is going for, but like once it is viewed by somebody that that piece of art is thus open for interpretation on behalf of the viewer. And like the monster is like one of the most universal ways for us to project our own fears onto a specific character and stuff Mm -hmm. like that, which is why you could look at the thing and see it being about uh, like four or five, maybe even more than that different subject Mm -hmm. matters and stuff. And like, you know, you could do that with a lot of different monsters while some may be a little bit more direct in their, in their allegory, especially going into like some of the early Godzilla films. It's very, very direct, Mm -hmm. but like on top of that, on top of the directness that you are feeling from, from the story, you're also able to, you know, project your own kind of emotions onto it, which is one of the great things about art, but one also one of the great things about Hollywood monster movies. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Hell yeah, dude. So for you personally, what are like three characteristics of a good monster movie? Um, yeah, so this one's, this is a really interesting question. So I, I'll, I'll, um, I'll, I'll go. I'll go one at a time. Like it, this would be like a long block of me talking. So I, yeah. we'll, we'll go. You know, kind of shoot back and forth, or whatever. But so to start off, the people, the characters fighting the monster. Um, if there are, I mean, there. I guess there should be. Otherwise, you know, what are they terrorizing? What are the what is the monster terrorizing? <laughs> otherwise, but right. the people fighting the monster, they have to be well-rounded characters with clear stakes in the story. Now, mm-hmm. like in a cheapo sci-fi weekend film, I don't care. Go ahead, kill everybody, destroy a city. Who the fuck cares? It, like, it, it's inconsequential. But right. in something like, um, just you know, as, as a quick example, I don't think this is the best example, but as a quick example, like in, in, in Cloverfield, we get to know the characters. You know, it's a found footage movie or whatever. But like we get through their dialogue, you know, we the, the beginning party and everything else, we get to understand how the characters know each other, their friendships, what's at stake in between, you know, their individual, you know, their individual relationships with one another. Um, you know, as the situations change, we get more dialogue to build or, you know, to build out their characters and their feelings a little bit more and more. And each death feels more consequential as we get from the beginning of the movie to the very end where apparently Manhattan gets, uh, gets nuked. And it, without that sort of, without that step-by-step building, no one gives a shit when Lizzie Kaplan explodes. Um, no one would give a shit when T.J. Miller, I think something big falls on T.J. Miller, I can't remember. But like, 
no one would give a shit about those moments if we didn't build them up from, you know, from scene to scene to scene. Yeah, definitely, man. And like, I noticed what you're talking about for me personally, when it came to the Godzilla remake, the 2014 one, where I, you know, obviously it couldn't just be Godzilla, like thwomping on the city for like mm-hmm. two hours and stuff that just like it's even as much as that sounds cool to me. I know for a fact that I would get bored in about 15 or 20 minutes. Like, right. It's like, oh, here's the this building. Oh, he's destroying this building and so forth and so on. But they did a really good job with like the Aaron Taylor Johnson and Brian Car- Brian Cranston storyline. And they did a good job of also building up these surrounding characters so that, you know, by the time you get to the monsters fighting, you are really, really wrapped up in these people's story. Well, Brian Cranston, like, you know, not so much, but like you're really right. wrapped up in these people's stories to try to like do whatever they're trying to do, whether it's, um, you know, get uh, weapons fired on Godzilla, just trying to leave whatever it is. And like, that's something that I've noticed, um, at least for, for me, it just seems like it's more of a newer thing that we're getting like more rounded out characters and stuff. Like when we first started to get some of these monster movies, I don't think that the characters were as deeper developed, but as we've gone on, they really, really have. And they've done a lot of like character depth and a lot of like character arcing things that are more rich in character than they had done in like previous years. Like I just watched like half of the Showu era Godzilla movies and you're not getting like super developed characters back then, but like now mm-hmm. the, the only way that you're going to get a monster movie made in any capacity, whether it's Godzilla or something a little bit smaller in size, you're definitely not getting there without some type of connection um, through the, with the characters uh, to, with the, and the audience. Absolutely. And which is, I mean, I don't know if you agree or disagree, but one of the, one of the reasons why, well, the pandemic probably is the biggest reason because I never ended up seeing it on the big screen but um, Godzilla versus Kong, we we had done all the character building mm-hmm. in the other movies at this point in time. So there wasn't really like more character building they could do to really make me care, and it it just made that movie feel like it stretched on a little bit too long. Oh, with Godzilla versus Kong, yeah, specific? yeah. Oh god. So like they they had a lot more fight scenes in that movie than mm-hmm. would normally would be in a Godzilla movie. And some of those you're like, okay, now they're just fighting on a boat or something like that. You know what I'm saying? Um, And then when you're adding in the multiple encounters, even before Mechagodzilla shows up. Yeah. I can understand what you're saying in terms of like it dragging a little bit. I, I will say that I think if we would have seen it in the theater, I, it maybe wouldn't have felt like as dragged on just because we're in the theater and there's like the spectacle of it. Mm -hmm. But, um, you, I will, I will tell you that yes, there's definitely some dragging that goes on, and it, it even kicks into high gear when they start getting into this whole like, I don't know, whatever it is, core of the planet, like upside down kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, where, the ho- um, hollow earth, the hollow earth. Yeah, yeah, like where he lives and stuff. I was like, oh, okay, so we're we're going down uh, that road now and everything. It's just there were some things in there that were just a little like, okay, like I guess if you guys are going to go this way, then I guess we're going to go this way, kind of. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Right. I even remember kind of even being surprised that Alexander Skarsgård um, had as much of a role in that movie as he did. Yeah, he really does, actually. Now that I'm really, that, now that I'm really thinking about this movie, he has a lot to do, and Millie Bobby Brown has a surprising amount to do. Can, again, considering we've already told their stories. Right. That is exactly right. I forgot she was so much a part of the second one, too, because her mom all of a sudden decided to have a Thanos complex out of the middle of nowhere and mm-hmm. release all these giant monsters onto the world, which yep. is a 
a whole other thing for another day. Right, but, right. Yeah, I, I definitely hear you on the connection with the characters. Um, for me, like the one I have would be um, it's sticking in line with something human related is that I do want a good balance of the humans and the monsters. Mm-hmm. So like, you, ha- yes, you have to develop these characters, but we can't spend like all this time with the characters to the point where like, we're kind of forgetting that we're watching a monster movie. And right. I'm not saying that the monster has to be in every shot and in many ways the monster doesn't even have to be in any sequence but at least has to be hinted to and we have to kind of see it there has to be a little bit of a build-up to it and it seems like it has to follow a kind of structured path in terms of how much time we spend with the monster and then that has to be balanced with what kind of time are we going to spend with the humans oh you are you are absolutely right, and you're hitting on the thing that I noticed. Um, I mean, I've noticed this before, but like upon doing like more research for this, and actually sitting and actually sat and watched. Um, I'll mention the movie in a little bit here. Actually, sat and watched an old uh, an old fifties movie, monster movie. How little the monsters in the movie is astounding, and mm-hmm. in some cases, it, it's like they're sort of talking about it, but not really. And I'm kind of sitting there like, like, oh, shit, I forgot I'm watching a movie about this particular monster. Like, I, I mean, literally, <laughs> like, at one point they're trying to solve a murder. And I'm just like, oh, right, the monster did it. And, <laughs> like, you just, it totally, like, drifts off. And I'm like, there is, you know, and, and this is, again, just because of the way, this is a, because of the way movies were made in the 50s. Um, you know, the the technological limitations. There's a bunch of things that go into it. But, like, it is so swung towards character and story and everything else that it's like, oh, by the way, like, we're heading towards a big ending with this creature. Um, But, like, you really, it really comes in, like, the last, it's only, like, an 85-minute movie or something like that. And literally the last 25 minutes, it it feels like it's all tacked on. Yeah, you know something? I remember some of those early ones from the 1950s and stuff like that being like that, where you maybe get some kind of inclination about a monster movie in the beginning. And then you are really like not getting much of anything until way later on in the movie and stuff. Mm -hmm. Like there may be, um, I think it might be one of the original American werewolves either in London or Paris, whichever city he's in where in the opening credits, he's walking. And by like the time we get to the end of where he's walking, he's turned into the werewolf and stuff. But then we don't really revisit a lot of werewolf changing kind of stuff, even for like a while in that movie. So it's almost like those people back then were like, all right, we're going to hook you in with a monster. We're going to hook you in with something. And then we're going to get into like what we know of as a movie in the 1940s and 50s, like, Oh, a film noir style movie where there's going to be a murder and a, a detective who drinks and he's got problems with the ladies or whatever he's got. And then we sort of kind of get into the monster at the end, just so we could say it's a monster movie. It, it's almost like, like they um it's almost like they wrote these movies to be something and then they found out that they can make them if we just work in a monster somehow yeah it's it's not it's actually not too unlike the later hellraiser like the ones that went straight to dvd uh and vod where like it's very clear i mean it's not even like it's they were trying to hide it like they were other horror movies and they mm-hmm. were just like oh well we could write pinhead into this Right. So, so they right. did, and they just stuck Hellraiser on it. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. And like, I have not seen any of those straight. You don't need TV to. Ones. You, okay, mean, you, good. you do not need to, unless you, unless you want to see like Adam Scott in his first movie. He's in one of them. Oh wow! Yeah, no, I'm cool with that. I have intentions of watching the new one, um, but yeah, it's good to know to skip over some of those because I'm yeah. watch. I started um, watching the first one um, just to kind of reintroduce myself to the world before I started watching the new ones mm-hmm. and um, or the the new one that came on Hulu. And uh, it's good to know to miss those because I could have easily fell into a Hellraiser hole that um, would have just been a, a colossal waste of time. There's oh, no way to get those dollars yeah, back. Yeah, a, a hole is the right way to describe it. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally believe that. So mm-hmm. what are what are some of your other characteristics? Uh, so the next thing here, the monster can be familiar. Like, it, it can be one of your classic monsters or something we've seen before. But, like, the, the movie needs to have some unique touches or unique rules for, like, mm-hmm. what's going on. So, like, just for an example here, have you ever heard of the movie Dog Soldiers? I have not. Okay, um, I would recommend it. It's uh, it's an interesting movie. Young, you got you get uh, young Sean Pertree and young Liam Cunningham in that one. Um, oh, cool! Uh, and it's uh, so it's a werewolf movie, um, which you know, the title kind of maybe slightly suggests. Not you know okay, werewolves hunting people in the woods, totally familiar. How about werewolves hunting special forces soldiers from in, in the Scottish Highlands? All right, a little bit more unique. And yeah. one of the more unique touches, the director, Neil Marshall, who did this movie, obviously, but did his like breakout movies, The Descent, uh, comes a couple years later. Um, one of the unique touches he did with this, when you get whenever you get the werewolf perspective, it's in black and light, black and white, like an old horror movie. And it like it is shot very much like a classic 1950s horror movie in black and white, like around this like haunted cabin, basically. Oh, that does sound really fucking awesome, actually. And I am a big Liam Cunningham fan, so that might be something for me to check out. And, dude, like what you're saying here, yes, because this is the only way to really keep the genre fresh. You know, like they're going to be doing vampires and like werewolves and stuff like till the, the, the to the end of time, you know, and they've got in the early 2000s. There were so many goddamn vampire movies that came out. I couldn't even count them. All. Oh, ridiculous. It, you can thank Blade for that. Right, exactly. Which I watched the one and two recently. Awesome. Oh, fucking awesome. yep. Blade, so Blade, good. fucking slaps still. Still slaps even after all this time. Stephen mm-hmm. Dorff's amazing. You mm-hmm. know, um, one of his best things that he's done. Uh, so, like, I think that that's really the only way some of these monsters are going to survive is if you keep on putting them into like newer situations or fresh situations with, you know, like they could have the same rules. Like I'm not expecting like um, vampire, like Dracula to all of a sudden be able to go outside. And that is how it is for the whole movie, you know, Mm -hmm. but there has to be like, there has to be like some kind of modification. So it does seem like new and fresh, you know? And I remember there was this vampire movie that came out. Sam Neill is in, and this was during the height of the the twilight um, and all that stuff from the early two thousands where like the whole world was vampires and stuff. And I was like, okay, yeah, here we go. This is like a pretty, pretty cool twist on like the, the, um, the, the classic vampire genre and all that stuff. And like those kinds of movies, like even like when they, which I haven't seen any of these movies, but I kind of appreciate what they did was when they try to do these like pride prejudice and zombies and Abraham Lincoln vampire hunter, where, you know, we're going, taking the monsters into whole other time periods, that kind of stuff. Like, I think that like, that is a really interesting way to keep something that has been around for so long and give it the appearance of something new and fresh for a whole new generation of Mm -hmm. audiences to latch onto. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, that's, I mean, 
the the historic the ones you just named like the historical fiction ones are sort of the result of um i forgot what publishing company started making those books um but it, it is sort of like the natural outcrop of that but you're you're right like that if you want to you know like we just need to sort of put a new spin on things and that's how you get you know that's how you get um you know nazi zombies in the snow um mm-hmm. in, in in like the snow-capped austrian mountains that's how you get um you know like one that we i think we both agree that i the something that could have been really interesting would have been john carpenter's vampires would have, right would have been a much more interesting movie with a little bit more money and probably a better cast um which is to, to say that's like changing quite a bit but <laughs> but like the but like the whole idea behind it you know the catholic church paying these like essentially fucking drifters to go mm-hmm. hunt and kill uh hunt and kill vampires that's like a that's a different spin on like what's going on with like the typical vampire person you know vampires versus humanity sort of conflict oh definitely dude vampires yes I watched it recently, and my God, there is a great movie buried in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. I will, I will tell you mm-hmm. that much and everything. And that kind of segues into like something similar. And it's just the fact that like I want this monster to be like I put it down as just cool, and it's oh, yeah, yeah. completely, completely subjective in the in what that means and stuff. There might be a movie that does one thing one way and another movie that does it almost the same, but it's a little bit different. And I can easily have two completely different opinions about those two different movies. And like, it goes into like, kind of like what you're saying about like, you know, you know, maybe keeping it fresh and to like have something new to break new territory. Like I want the monster to definitely, we don't have to be something that I haven't seen every time but I do want it to be cool enough and intriguing enough to stand up to separate itself from other movies. Like this is like this one movie that I'm going to reference here, which is the Bram Stoker's Dracula from the nineties. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's a Francis Ford Coppola movie. It is definitely different from most takes on Dracula and whether like, I remember liking parts of it. I remember not liking parts of it. So it's like rather, you know, just kind of flat and in the middle on the movie, mm-hmm. But I completely respect what Francis Ford Coppola did because it is totally different. And now this movie like is having a, a little bit of a renaissance. There's um, it's coming back to the theaters and stuff like that for a little bit of a limited run. So the fact that um, this movie was different enough to like stand out. And now it's kind of having this little renaissance. I, I you know I think that's like what a lot of people want is they want like fresher, cooler, much more interesting, and maybe even slightly different takes on some of these classic monsters that we've seen throughout the course of history. Oh, for sure. Um, I mean, yeah, no, for sure. And I think you, like, just to sort of, I I really didn't know that about Bram Stoker's Dracula. Um, But I guess you do, correct me if I'm wrong, is this the one that gives us, like, the, the sort of the beginning where, like, we get historic Dracula, we get Vlad the Impaler? Oh, I think you are right on that. Yes, they do take us way back. And I mean, they get into all kinds of stuff that we just hadn't seen before in previous like iterations of Dracula. Like there was a, a big beast going around and uh, Dracula was older and stuff like yeah. it was way different than anything that I had seen prior to um, prior to this movie. Yeah, it, more so like we're getting into more if you if you will. I mean, it's not a obviously it's not a real person, but like more well, I get Vlad the Vlad the Impaler was a real person, but like the 
what they base Dracula off of. We're getting into like mm-hmm. a more a more historical and less you know less of the Bela Lugosi sort of um, uh, I don't know how you like the the refined vampire into right. much more of like I mean. Gary Oldman can do like the refined stuff just fine when he's you know as uh, when as an older Dracula, but definitely more the the vampires are more like animals than yes. than like what Bela Lugosi's um, uh, you know portrayal of of Dracula in a vampire would have been. Right, and you, you hit that right. This does start off in 1462 with Vlad the Impaler, yes, yeah. and like these are more like dirty, grungy, realistic, like what they would be vampires mm-hmm. and stuff. Whereas the Bela Lugosi one. It's while the image is iconic and could easily be the most iconic image of Dracula ever. I mean, it's still even to this day, it's um, it's very clean and it's very like 1950s movie kind of like movie making and storytelling it's, and all that. Yeah, stuff. it's very it's it, it come you know comes from the Victorian era. Um, well, vampire tales come from. I mean, they're much older than that. But like the the classic Dracula tale comes from well you know obviously Bram Stoker and um Mary you know and you know Bram Stoker Mary Shelley and I know there's a few others in there that that are basically the the progenitors of all these stories the the sensibilities are very Victorian era England and so their characters are very Victorian era England right that's exactly right dude and like when you when you get that it just you know it just kind of works this way and stuff like that. And so when you get something new, like, or something different, like Bram Stoker, Bram Stoker's Dracula, it has this tendency to make an impact. I mean, that's why it started at like a $60 million budget and made like $240 mm-hmm. million and stuff like that, you mm-hmm. know? And like, I will tell you like Francis Ford Coppola directing a horror movie doesn't necessarily sound like something that, um, that is in his wheelhouse, but here he did it. He made a good one, and now like it's coming back, and like they, they'll be writing movies or writing papers on that movie until you know until the cows come home and stuff like that, just because mm-hmm. of the, the kind of like some of the oh, significance sure. behind the directors, the mm-hmm. cast, all that kind of stuff for sure. So, what is your last characteristic? Pretty easy one here. The movie has to figure out the rules for its monster and stick with it. Are mm-hmm. are we going to you know is this monster aggressive or defensive? Right? Is it like is it hunting people down or is it merely reacting is the monster good bad or ambivalent i mean we've had that in all iterations of of monster and horror movies where it could be any one of the three but you need to pick a lane and stick with it and and for the movie itself are we going to show the monster a lot are we going to conceal it um you know we need to make you need to make a decision on 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 that like how much we're actually going to see it how much it's going to be a part of each scene those kind of rules you need to figure out and stick with it and because once you begin to break them, the, you know, some of the tension that you're building by hiding the monster gets broken if we begin to see too much of it as the movie goes on, um, instead of waiting for like one big reveal or something. Oh, dude, I am such a fan of establishment of rules and everything. It is so vital to not just any story, but in particularly the monster story, because without the establishment of rules, you could be 45 minutes into the movie and just all of a sudden this happens. And it's like, oh, okay. Like, is that in character with what the story we're trying to tell here? Mm -hmm. And when you get into those kind of situations, it can have a tendency of throwing things off a little bit. And then it could also, you know, just throw around the question of like, oh, so what did they just 
why didn't they just do this? Or why didn't they just do that? You know, and when you start asking yourself those kinds of questions with 45 minutes left in the movie, it takes you out of the experience and everything. And that's why, like, if you have a clear set of established rules in the beginning, it sets boundaries. It like, you know, lets the story know where it can go and where it can't go. And there are often times when something goes in a direction that it's not supposed to go in or something that just like feels off and it just kind of takes you out of it and stuff. So like a clear establishment of the rules, I think is key. And you make a really good point about um, what we're going to do in terms of seeing the monster and stuff like that, because you could have these movies where, you build up to the, the the monster, like the huge reveal, which personally I, I think is the best way. I want like a nice kind of solid build up and mm-hmm. stuff. But however, if you're getting the full view of the monster in the first act and the story doesn't really escalate from there, it's kind of just you're you're burning all of your oil in the first like 30 minutes of the movie Mm -hmm. and you still have 60 more to go. You know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? So unless you plan on taking the monster that we've seen and all of a sudden making it a big colossal version of itself or, Hey, another monster comes along, eats it up. And now you're fighting that monster. It's just going to kind of get boring, you know, and like I I go back to to Fern Gully, which is just a movie that I can go back to for anything. And like when you see the smoke monster, like you do see the formation of the smoke monster and the smoke monster is his as how we see it. But by the end of the movie, he gets more and more like powerful. So when we're seeing the monster towards the end of the movie, it is still the same monster, but it's a different iteration of it a more powerful bigger iteration of it and fern gully wouldn't be all that great if it was just this same smoke monster coming outside of the machine singing and dancing it just it would have taken you out of it because there's no build-up yeah yeah you're you're exactly right i think there there is a way to like you mentioned there is a way to sort of do the monster like if you're going to show it like right away um and it's sort of like it's like the monster itself that has to progress progress in some way, shape, or form, or we have to introduce another one, you know, in some way. So there's a way to do it. I think you can also, um, you can also sort of, I, I, sort of like um, to, to, I don't know, like the Lost Boys, we know that vampires right off the bat are involved in this, you know, and, and the characters know that there are right. vampires living in their town. And a lot of it, then like the Lost Boys becomes discovery of, who is a vampire, who they think is a vampire, and who's really a vampire. Right. That's right. Exactly. And you do get the big twist at the end because they were building it up through the entire movie as to, like, who the hell the head vampire is. You know, like, you know who these, like, kind of secondary vampires and stuff are, but, like, you can't do anything about them unless you get to the head vampire. So they do escalate the story in a really great way to try to find the, you know, the big powerful one. And then we get the big twist in the end, obviously. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. Hell yeah, dude. So this can apply for pretty much all the eras that are discussed in this episode. And we kind of like the, the last thing that I was going to bring into was just kind of, was just about the, um, the, like an allegory thing. I think that like, kind of like what you were saying before, like, I didn't really want to get too far into it, but I do appreciate a monster movie with a solid allegory. I think it makes the whole thing a lot better. So when it comes to the origin of the monster, like how important is the monster's origin story to you when viewing a monster movie? 
You know, I, I think it's I think it is very important, but it's about showing the right amount of that story, and mm-hmm. uh, and I th- I think it is dependent upon what the monster is and what it could be representing, right? Like, yeah. So if we're doing a werewolf movie, and we're doing one where we're seeing the werewolf as a man, or we're or it's a vampire story and it's about how someone became a vampire, then we need a lot more backstory and origin story. Because we are talking about someone that is, you know, we're talking about a character that is still at some level a human being. And if, if it's a human being, then they're going to have human emotions. There's going to be a human story wrapped up to it. So in that case, like I need more backstory. I need more origin story. I need to develop that character, um, you know, how they develop as both, um, you know, let's, let's, you know, in the case of a werewolf, how they're developing as a werewolf. And then also how they're developing as the man or the woman dealing with being a werewolf. Like there's two mm-hmm. there's two stories that we need, we need to kind of serve there. If it's an un, if it's like an unstoppable force of nature or some kind of completely alien type of creature, not literally an alien, but could be literally an alien type of creature. I don't need to know a lot other than just hints about what it you know what it might be, the general idea of what it's doing, and maybe maybe if you want to like mention you know like. Like, oh, this thing, you know, we, we, we found on its body there was, like, um, there was a rare type of metal you only find in asteroids or something. Then, right. like, oh, okay, this is an alien that we're dealing with. So, like, I, I don't really need, but, like, in that case, I wouldn't need any more than that to, you know, to sort of fill in the blanks and fill in what's going on. Um, does that does that make sense? Oh, that makes all the sense in the world. I actually had, like, a very similar kind oh, of okay. answer and stuff like that. Yeah, like, for me, it's all about, like, the subject matter and stuff. And, like, if we're doing a movie, like you said, where it is focusing in on one person becoming something, one person, like, you know, maybe dealing with something that's a little more of an inter- like a internal, like, smaller world and stuff, I feel that having origins is great. Like I honestly, like if it's a, like about one guy becoming a vampire, I want to know like who the guy who turned him. I actually wouldn't mind seeing the the process, the guy getting bit, maybe he gets buried in the ground to mm-hmm. solidify himself as a vampire. These are the kind of things that I want. Number one, cause I, I love processes in general. I'm a huge process guy. So when we're watching a movie like that, like I want to see all of it, you know, like when you're, when you watch Joker and stuff, which is, you know like not you're not necessarily like a movie that's in the genre that we're talking about but you get to see everything that you need to see as far as that transformation that descends into madness goes you know and you're given backstory about the guy you get to see events change arthur fleck and stuff like that you get to like actually live in with the character and like if we're going for a movie like that that's exactly what i want to see in terms of the monster but I got to say, like, you know, if it's like people out in the woods and they're being like, you know, there's crazy shit in the forest or you're right, maybe like a a crazy evil alien type thing. I don't even think that we really need much of a story at all. Like, I will gladly take the, uh, oh, this guy has haunted the woods for years from one of the local residents in the area. And that totally works for me. Like, it doesn't need to be this thing where, okay, there is this monster And back in, like, you know, uh, 1063, this monster supposedly came over on one of the ships and just, you know, we don't need to get into all that kind of stuff here because, like, it's just like it's almost like a situational thing. You know, the monster just happens to be a result of the situation that that they're in. And we don't really need to dabble into too much of Mm -hmm. where he came from. 
but like if it's going to be something that where the point is to have the audience experience something with the main character like a like a transformation or maybe just like one guy going out to like hunt a bunch of different vampires or something like if you have a little bit more smaller focus on the story that's like where i think the origin really like really really is needed mm-hmm. I, I, absolutely i i don't i want to i don't want to belabor this point because you it's, it's an excellent point and we've already talked about it a couple times but i think as a movie this has some very interesting black and white examples of this again in cloverfield the movie opens up like we're watching um top secret author you know government authorized film so there's your first hint right mm-hmm. like at, at the origins of what's going to happen and then there's like some newsreel footage about a satellite falling and then um basically at the, at the end of the movie you're kind of filled in with another sort of um you know another sort of like message on the on the tape saying that like if you you know if you've seen this you know then the area formerly known as manhattan now referred to as cloverfield whatever um you know you're whatever it is but like those three things you're like okay like this is all yeah. the origin story of the monster I need. That's it. Right. Yeah, exactly. You could piece that together. Like you and I are intelligent enough audience members to have that little bit of information and completely get the point and stuff like that. Like there may be a time where if you get wrapped up in a movie like Cloverfield and you become such a fan of it and stuff like that, you may start to wonder and ponder like what is beyond the explanation that's been given into the movie. But as far as like just sitting there and watching the movie, they're giving you everything that you need. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Definitely do. Definitely. So we're going to now move the conversation into what I call monstery class, where we're going to be going through the different eras of monsters in cinema that starts with the early monster films and 19, it starts in 1915 mm-hmm. and goes all the way to 1954. And these early examples of monster films, um, the early ones, came out in Europe. And these were the early part of the 1900s, like with The Golem in 1950 from Paul Wegener, Nosferatu in 1922 with F.W. Murnau. Murnau. Murnau, that's right. Yes, yeah. Murnau. Sorry about that. I was reading that wrong. And uh, even A Dragon in 1924's The Nibelungen from Fritz Lang. So we got a lot of, um, got, definitely got some German. Um, oh, they're all, all the, yeah, all the yeah. early movies are essentially, all the early full-fledged horror movies are German. Um, yeah. And we actually, we actually talked about the Gollum previously. Um, and it, it's often cited as possibly one of the first actual, like, movies. Yes. Um, obviously, there was, like, moving pictures prior to then. But in mm-hmm. terms of, like, a, a, a comprehensive story from beginning to end, the Gollum is one of the, one of the ones that's cited as possibly being the first, quote-unquote, movie. Yes, yes. You are definitely right about that. Yeah, and, like, the all this, like, German stuff, like... I go back to film class and we learned about like uh, German impressionism, like mm-hmm. this, uh, like, you know, like what every Tim Burton movie looks like, basically, yep. like very stylized mm-hmm. and everything in terms of the sets and stuff almost looks like a candy land from hell. So being that this was this early film movement in Germany, um, I could 100 percent see how a lot of these earlier horror movies kind of all came from there. And God only knows with. World War One and then World War Two. The Germans have a lot of like societal fears here to um, to reinforce. Some oh, of these you, let's let's go movies. even before then. Have you read any of their fucking children's tales? 
I have not actually. If I had, it's been so long. Like, uh, like, have you ever stuff. heard of Hansel and Gretel? And oh yeah, have you ever yes, heard of? Yeah, yes. Oh yeah. Like right. children yeah. are being yeah. fucking eaten, eaten and shit. Like it's, it's unbelievable. So those are their children's stories. Yeah, that's what you get told to uh, go to sleep at night and and everything like that. Which in the end kind of makes me see how uh, World War Two maybe came to uh, be. Just all that anger and terror and hostility and stuff. But um, so like with these were the early ones, and then America we started making our own monster movies with the Universal monsters, which tallied forty one movies made between nineteen thirty one and nineteen fifty six. So I know that a lot of the obviously these are way 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 before our time, <laughs> way before our time, but. Do you have any like personal connection, memory, or even like a favorite of these early Universal monster movies? No, <laughs> I think they, sure. they're from way too early um, for me to really have seen these as anything other than like interesting pieces of film history. Like that's to me, these movies are like going to a museum. <laughs> yeah, like with in my days now. That is 100% how it is. When when I was younger, I can remember a lot of, um, like when AMC used to show black and white movies all the time. Like I, this may even be before we had Turner Classic movies, but these movies were like always a part of like a marathon thing. You had the guy uh, in the robe and like a chair surrounded by books, almost like a masterpiece theater type thing. And I have seen like a couple of these when I was younger. Um, my issue is, is that I guess I'll say this out now just because I, I would, I have a recommendation that is kind of like for later, that's kind of rooted with what I'm about to say is I kind of thought that some of these movies were boring, even as a kid, I'm not going to lie. Like, Oh yeah. There, yeah. There's, there's um, only hanging on to one monster throughout the entire time. I just couldn't really hold my attention and stuff. And like, this was like when I was younger. So we're looking at like the eighties and nineties when it's like, why do I want to watch the bride of Frankenstein when I could watch Godzilla destroy like a bunch of buildings, you know, and since I'm younger, like I'm going to be into more like loud, colorful things going on type movies. And like, I just could never really latch on to the universal monsters, like, consistently you know it was just they all just kind of seemed a little too older even for me as a kid like it wasn't like I had this uh oh my god it's not like I had like such a strong connection to any of the early ones just because they were the only things to watch or something like that I mean I literally like could be in it for like 45 minutes and then take myself out of it kind of thing Mm -hmm. so um so this was like this was a genre or a time period where I just honestly like these were uh, things of their time just to say the least and yes if i were to watch one today which i have watched like you know classic movies and stuff like that even in more recent years and it is like going into a trip to the museum it is like like a little bit of like a history lesson to just kind of see how these movies were made what early horror looks like that kind of stuff but when you're when I remember even being a kid, like watching like the mummy movies and it's like, okay, so we got a mummy walking after you really slow and you've been screaming for five minutes straight. How have you not outrun this mummy? Mm-hmm. Like how has no one come to help you? Like, Oh, we have more than one people running from this mummy. Like, Oh God, Jesus Christ. Like, I'm, just, I'm sorry. It's just like, I, this was something that I just could not necessarily vibe with. No, not, not at all. It, it, these are, like I said, like when we, when we went back and we did the B movie, when we did the B movies, 
Um, even though, like, even though I found both uh, the Fast and the Furious and um, Superman versus the Mole Man interesting, um, and actually, you know, really to varying degrees, liked both of them. They are they are very much not for a modern audience whatsoever. Like, I I wouldn't show those movies to anyone unless they had a really deep interest in the sort of the origin of movies. That like right. who why why on earth would you show Superman of the Moment to anyone who was <laughs> maybe like if they're super interested in DC, all things DC, like hey, mm-hmm. check out like the the very first DC film. Right. That's right. Yeah, exactly. There'd be no reason for me ever to just want to like sit around and watch Superman and the Mole Man. You know, I mean like even for a movie that like, you're right. I, I enjoyed that when we did our B movie, um, our B movie month and everything for in May, but it wasn't like I had this like super like rush or desire to like go out there and like watch that again. Like, mm-hmm. I, I think even like outside of our discussion, like I maybe talked about it with Jess for like five minutes. It's just like, Oh yeah, this is what the Superman kind of started as blah, 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 blah. But the the movie itself like is something that it's like, like a relic of the time period something that if you like dc you should see this movie just to like know where superhero movies started but the difference between that movie and the super superhero movies today are just like they're so different you know and like i will argue that like it's just they've improved like the, the everything the storytelling like everything has just improved mm-hmm. so much that that right there would be super entertaining to like maybe my grandparents. But for me, I'm, it's more of like, it's almost like an educational video yeah. without learning really anything of substance. You know? <laughs> right. Right. So like, so th- that's kind of how it is for me. They're yeah. like, it's, it's cool to take these trips back in time every now and then. Like I, I, I spent 150 bucks on the, show where a Godzilla movie box it only to find it on HBO three months later, but it, it's still cool to have that. And it is still kind of cool to pop in one of those every now and then just to like check out older Godzilla movies and stuff and see like the, just the, the different monsters and what stuff looked like back then. But I, it's not like I'm getting out of work and I'm like, man, I just got to go home and watch the son of Godzilla. Like it, that kind of shit just doesn't happen to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Definitely dude. So in, um, <clears throat> So what is um, one way that these early monster movies were a reflection of their time? Well, some of them are not so thinly veiled, um, not so thinly veiled racist stereotypes. Um, King Kong in particular, but there are other movies where the monster or the creature or whatever the, the protagonist is fighting against, they're from some exotic place in Asia or Africa or the Amazon. Um, that is not a mistake whatsoever that those creatures are from places where non-white people are from. It is not a mistake. Right. Witch doctors, voodoo shit, all that stuff. Yeah, definitely from areas that white people are not from. Yeah, you have got that right. And pretty much a lot of older movies and stuff like that are statements of racist, rooted in racism in some way, shape or form and everything. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah, like that is a hundred fucking percent true and everything. And it just won't. It's like, man, there's just a lot of fucking racism in there yeah. all around. It doesn't, it doesn't, like, it's one of those things. Once you, you know, you recognize it, you acknowledge it, you can still watch King Kong as a piece of, uh, as a piece of Hollywood history. To, like, in the same way that we're just talking about the other movies. Examine it like you're examining in a museum, right? Like, mm-hmm. just 
it's racist, whatever. Let's just get on to the filmmaking aspects and like what it meant to Hollywood at that point in time. And then you can have a good discussion from there. Yeah, exactly, dude. And you can have discussions about like how far movies have come since then. And like, there, there's definitely still racism in the system. Oh, you yeah. know, like I, I'm not about to say that there isn't, but like, you know, those kinds of movies, I think it's a little bit more in your face than maybe it is today. I don't know. It's just my, my personal opinion. Like the, the racism part is a little bit more in, in the foreground than maybe it is today, but it's something that you can watch and learn from it. So you, I guess it's like a expiring filmmaker or a writer as I am. So you don't do things that those movies did because sure. they're just not flying today. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Right. And like, I approached this question um, from a little bit of a different angle. And like, I believe that these movies are a reflection of their time because like these we're looking at like just a much simpler audience we're looking at like a much simpler time audiences intelligences have gone up so much even in the course of the last like 15 years or so i mean the audience itself like it might as well be a little child back in when these early movies started and now like i mean audience intelligences are through the roof compared to what they used to be Mm -hmm. so just having the guy wearing a scary mask or like watching somebody being assembled like Frankenstein, like out of human body parts and stuff like these were enough back then to drive terror into the hearts of audiences because they just didn't really have anything else to go by. And there's a story that, you know, we're told in like film schools and stuff like that about how there was a movie that was shown in a theater one time where like a train is coming towards the the camera and the audiences were like leave running out of the theater in crazy hysteria because they thought the train was coming right at them, you know, mm-hmm. because that they just didn't, they didn't have any other thing else to like experience. So like, if you they were never new, seen it before like that, yeah, right. Exactly. So like, these movies back then, like no one really had horror movies to watch and stuff. And like these, some of these German films like weren't in the theater near you in the 19, the twenties, thirties and forties and stuff. So the early universal monster movies were all that these things were all that these um, people like had to go off of. And if you were to make the exact same movie now, it would be awful. Like it would be so Mm -hmm. fucking awful. And like the same kind of gimmicks and shit like that, that they used to use, maybe like music might still have somewhat of an effect, but just the idea of somebody walking close or somebody walking behind you and the other person running in fear for their lives. It's just not enough. Not enough. No, you're right. Like it's not enough. And it's just, um, yeah, we, we just, even, even those movies by, as you can tell by like the, the, the sequels of these, uh, of these original, of these original like monster movies that started popping up that would have been popping up in the forties and the fifties, they like had to take like more, not extreme, but they went to more steps to include different characters and in different situations because it was like, well, we've already seen Dracula do this. Now, how, how about the son of Dracula do this? And yeah. we'll include, and you know, like you know like we'll 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 um well shit how about if what if we include abbott costello in this in this movie in this in this uh, dracula movie like you're right. right like it, it it doesn't take very long for the studios to begin experimenting with okay we've already shown them this thing now they're used to it now we have to do something different 
Right, exactly. I'm glad you brought up the Abbott and Costello thing, because that's actually going to segue into the next question, which is one of the ways that these movies were ahead of their time. Go for it. I was going to say, leave this one off then. Go for it. I got to tell you, dude, the fact that somebody back then was smart enough to do these crossovers with Abbott and Costello Mm -hmm. and work in horror or comedy into a horror movie, I thought was like light years ahead of its time. And we have horror comedies today and they're, they're making a fuck ton of them and stuff, but like to have it back then to where it's like, you know, let's get Abbott and Costello with Frankenstein. Let's get them with the mummy, with the invisible man. I, I thought that the um, producers in the studio had a lot of foresight here to unlock what is going, what would end up being a very popular genre, even to, to this day of horror comedy. Oh, for sure, for sure. And it is how about how about how about crossing genres and also creating their very early on own shared universes? Uh, but they were called um, what the fuck were they called back then? Rallies, mm-hmm. where the creature from the Black Lagoon would have would be involved with. I don't know. Um, I don't know. Fucking um, the Invisible Man or something. Like, right. like they were they were doing that literally within like ten years of those movies being released. They're like, fuck. Well, let's just have him fight. Let's have the let's have the creature from the Black Lagoon fight Dracula. Why not? Right. Yeah. Dude, like these people had like a really like a good amount of common sense um, when it comes to you, right? Like the crossovers, these shared universes and stuff, because we are doing the exact same things today. The superhero movies like God, these this new slate of DC, DC stuff is going to be propped up by characters from other movies being shown in these sequels and stuff like that. And the idea of like the shared universe, like that is something that um that like a lot of people, I think, like maybe feel Marvel invented it, especially with just like the uh, the power that Marvel has and the amount of cinematic universe building that they have done over the years. But this concept of the shared universe has been around for a very, very, very long time through these original like Universal horror movie monsters. Yep, yep. It's 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 all it's yeah. It's it's nothing new. And Chama, I'm still waiting. I am so ready to welcome in a new world of gods and monsters with this dark universe that's coming in 2017. Oh my God. I know, right? Like Jesus Christ. We just, <laughs> holy fucking shit. And my God, we are still, that's a very, very nice tease for later on in the episode and everything here. Cause <laughs> just, just, I, just, I know it's a good tease. And also those, the, the, that tweet is still up. <laughs> I'm looking at it right now. Nice, very nice, <laughs> awesome, awesome. Shit. We'll we'll get we'll get more into that, but I just that tweet is still up. Yeah, it takes like knowing that I put this dark universe element into the outline. It's taken me everything not to be like, all right, let's just jump right to that because like I do have so much to I do have so much to uh, to say when we get into that part yeah. for sure. But before we get there, we got a couple more errors to get through, and the oh, next one is real, real quick. Sorry. Real quickly, just to backtrack um, on the on the the movies being ahead of their time, just real quick, um, we you, you know like so you pointed out like sort of the um, you know like the, the 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 genre crossing sophistication and stuff, but also like they cracked the code in Germany a hundred years ago on these shooting techniques th- that would elicit the most uneasiness and would elicit mm-hmm. the most visual um, the maximum amount of visual horror. They did. They were doing that in 1924, and we haven't really changed a lot since then. Like the code was cracked, certain things just look scary on film, and we haven't found a better way to do it because there is no better way to do it. Right. It's like when you come when you do something like that, you're unlocking this like primal kind of shit that people feel and everything. And 
like when you have techniques that go back that far, like and number one coming out of the Germans, which I just expect them to master something like this, but these are like, it's almost like just like staples and like fundamentals of horror filmmaking and everything, Mm -hmm. the way that the camera works, maybe certain angles, the way music is supposed to kick in and the exact type of music that is Mm -hmm. to be played. Like, yeah, I mean, all this stuff that you're right was established like, you know, over a hundred years ago and they don't need to make any changes because it works. And like, you could see the exact same camera stuff, um, camera work and filmmaking techniques, but in different stories and they still work because of the story. It's like oh, yep. it's the, pretty much at this point in time, like it's the the story that drives it. And horror, you know, horror fans and um, horror filmmakers and like uh, actors and stuff like that. Like these are they all need to. You don't. You could reinvent horror in other ways by not fucking around with the fundamentals. And there are directors out there that are reinventing horror, but not fucking around with the fundamental stuff. Yep. Yep, like the just the I think it's I'm pretty sure it's from Nosferatu, the like the the shot of like the long shadow approaching someone from behind, you know mm-hmm. the shadow of the monster or you know whatever it doesn't right. have to be the monster any antagonist, that was from Nosferatu and it, it still works it still works and every single horror movie has done almost every single horror movie has done some kind of similar shot because it it works right and that situation right there the, the approaching shadow from behind. It goes into and taps into a primal element of fear where, like, you don't know what's behind you. It could be scary. You know, it's, it's just like a simple way to put it. But that is like what it is here, where the audience does not know what's behind them. Something is coming up, raises anxiety and or like heightens your emotions. And and that's how you play off of that, mm-hmm. for sure. Like that is that's like the whole like building suspense thing, which I've been watching like uh, some videos on lately and stuff. And that, that is just like a, um, a staple framework of how to create suspense and how to create horror on the screen. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. Very, very nice, dude. All right. Let's, let's tap into the Kaiju era here, which goes from 1954 to 1975. And we've had some Godzilla talk kind of peppered in throughout the last like a uh, month or so. So we don't have to spend a lot of time here, mm-hmm. but, um, the Wikipedia had a, the list of their monster movies had 59 monster mo- movies being made during the Kaiju era. They were still making alien vampire and werewolf movies, but we saw a major increase in the giant monster um, being made mm-hmm. during this time. A lot of it could being attributed to, um, you know, advancements in filmmaking technology, um, societal fear spawned from the, the dropping of the nuclear bomb. Yep. So there are definitely some factors into why we maybe start to see a rise in the giant movie monster being made during this time. But I want to ask you, like, do you personally consider kaiju movies to be horror movies? I, you know, I think they can be. And I think at the time that these things started popping up, you know, the the first wave in the 1950s, these movies probably were considered horror movies simply Mm -hmm. because we really didn't have, you know, a very diverse slate of horror movies, you know, especially in the 50s. I mean, basically at this point, you know, the Universal Monsters, which were mostly adaptations of Victorian horror novels, um, and then obviously like the first slate of like Atomic Scare movies. So like, I think that like we were, you could group them directly into horror and it would make sense. There's a lot of horror elements. Like when you, especially you watch like the first Godzilla, some of the horror elements in right. the way Godzilla is actually shot is very much, you know, using some of those horror angles we just talked about in horror, you know, the general horror conventions, the shooting conventions are, are there, 
in mm-hmm. the first Godzilla. But right. it's I think it's very clear in hindsight a, this, a whole new genre was being created. <laughs> Right. You know, you got that right, dude. And I go back to the first Godzilla movie, um, which which I watched recently. And yeah, like that is like that is very, very horry. I mean, Godzilla's for the most part, um, the attacks take place at night. You don't really get any full day shots of the monster. You don't even really get that till um, the second Godzilla movie that they make, um, which is nowhere near as good as the first one. And um, so when I see that. And I see the giant creature in the dark and kind of all the destruction that happens. Like, yeah, like totally could see that being a horror movie. And there's even some, um, yeah, kind of like scarier imagery when we get into the doctor's machine that he makes and everything. We get to see some bones Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So that movie to me is definitely what I I would even consider that even to this day to be in the horror category. Mm -hmm. And you are right. When it came down to like what audiences had at the theater, you know, you're basically looking at the universal monster stuff and continuations of the the universal monsters. We start to get like the zombies in there a a little bit. Um, Then it's all like the the devil and everything like that, you know, Mm -hmm. like kind of religious centric um, horror movies. So considering what was offered at the time, like, yeah, like if you're living in that point in time, like I could definitely see how, one might consider the giant monster kaiju movie to be a horror movie. But when we look at it retrospectively, it's, it's really not. And I mean, Mm -hmm. once you even get beyond the first Godzilla movie, I mean, the other ones are just like, they're very colorful. They're very, very bright. It's like, you're basically just watching Godzilla go to fighting another monster and stuff like that, You, you know? So as it progresses, it becomes less and less horror-y, and and then then but th- that's totally cool because it was just a whole new genre of film that was yeah. created during this time. You are a hundred percent right on that. It's just like it's really hard for me to go back and be like, yeah, even like Godzilla versus Astro Monster or Godzilla versus Monster Zero, the, the King Ghidorah. It's very even though Ghidorah is a very scary looking monster, it's still really hard for me to put it into the the horror category. Yeah, it, it, absolutely, and I think and I think one of the things it's the not just Godzilla, some of the other atomic scare movies like the ones with the giant ants, which I think is just called them, correct? Them, exclamation yeah, them. Point, yes. Um, because the things are so big, it actually takes some of the mystery out of what would go into a horror movie. So mm-hmm. like if. If Godzilla was still like a big creature, but big enough to sort of like hide places, I, right. I you could see how it would it would definitely be it would it would still fall very much into the horror genre. Right, that's right, exactly, and like because you could make it so you don't see him, and then he just kind of like comes out of nowhere. You know what I'm saying? There's an element of surprise yeah. there. Nowadays, when they try to do similar things with Godzilla, it's always like the people are indoors and then like a wall gets busted down and it's like a jump scare and everything like that, Mm -hmm. you know? So they, they just don't have, they don't have a a full toolbox to work with when it comes to like making these giant monsters, like a super scary horror movie, like even like, um, even like a psychological horror movie where like, it's basically like watching a symphony, like one wrong note, one wrong camera angle could throw off the scare, could throw everything off. Mm-hmm. You, you can't even really do that with the giant monster movie because right. it's, just, there's, it's right. too big of a spectacle. Mm-hmm. And 
what I'm coming to find, and especially as I continue to watch horror movies, and I, I watched the, the Witch um, two days ago, like a lot of like really really good horror is in a more contained universe, and that is contained in the amount of people, the landscape itself, and even just like what they're dealing with. Like you can't go too big. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yes, you were, you were 100% correct. I agree with you. Definitely, bro. No, I, yeah, I just, something that I've noticed. So yeah. with, um, so one thing about Godzilla is Godzilla starts off as the, the bad guy in the 1954 movie, but then over time he evolves into more of a hero role and he actually evolves into the hero role starting with the, the second Godzilla mm-hmm. movie, which you could definitely skip over that one. Just go right from the black and white one right into the color ones. Mm-hmm. So um, are there any like present day monsters or horror movie antagonists that you think could ever evolve from a villain into a hero of a franchise? That is, this is a really interesting question because we actually we have some other examples besides besides Godzilla. We have Kong, obviously, mm-hmm. um, gets a necessary transformation. Um, from you know being a, a racist sort of uh, t- you know a, a, a racist sort of dog whistle um, into something a little bit more heroic, um, but like we've actually we've gotten kind of close to it unintentionally with Jason Voorhees, where yeah. he's kind of an antihero in a lot of the later movies and sequels, mm-hmm. um, and clearly he's sort of. You know, obviously he's not in the first one, um, but like even like you kind of understand at least the reasoning behind his killing spree. Like he was tortured as a kid and like like you can kind of get it. You you get that. And he seems to have a code too. like he kills a lot of people in this. Again, especially the later sequels, he kills a lot of people that have it coming that like really deserve to die. Um, And there's other examples of him like not killing innocents. So like mm-hmm. I, I again this 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 I'm not getting to the answer just yet. We have some we have some examples where there's like a little bit of closeness to this, but I think what I think you could do is sort of take I, I, honestly I think you could you could stick with these like kaiju monsters and use them as be it Godzilla be it make up another one. You don't even have to it doesn't even have to be something that exists already in, in canon. You could use these sort of giant monsters as sort of like tools to teach about climate change and corporate greed and shit. Like I, I don't have like a specific one in mind, but I could sort of see these um, these giant monsters being sort of like a, a reaction to like you know one of the, you know climate change being a big thing right now. Um, right. Uh, you know, I, you know. Again, I, like we mentioned before, um, that we're gonna see we're gonna see a lot of like very interesting abortion horror movies and birth horror mm-hmm. movies there right. there could be some ground to be covered there in terms of like bodily autonomy and those kind of civil rights you know creatures being used for that reason too right right dude yes like the kaiju monsters when it comes to like large global what should be like universally accepted things like 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 climate change for example like the, the climate change is a really really great example the kaiju monster could definitely be used in some way, shape, or form to be a hero against climate change or a monster that started from climate change. Like, who the hell knows? Maybe somebody dropped a, a bomb somewhere trying to prevent climate change that caused a monster. Well, whatever it might be. Yeah. So, like, those monsters could be used to to definitely battle, like, planet-impactful things 100%. 
I like when I was going through a list of like candidates in the non Kaiju monster movie category, like mm-hmm. your Jason Voorhees, your Michael Myers, it's really hard to just shape them into an outright hero because right. you're right. Jason, Jason, like, yeah, he kills a bunch of like assholes that just like deserve to die and stuff. And in, in, in some of the more in the later, like Friday the 13th and stuff, like even like, um, God, like actually like Michael Myers has maybe left like a couple people alive in his mm-hmm. time. It's, it's not a lot, but I guarantee you there's at least like a couple, there's at least like one or two I know for sure. But, um, it's going to be hard to shape them into heroes or like, you know, protagonists that are like ones that people could root behind without turning the movie into like a propaganda film. And like, yeah. you know, it would be like, okay, so Michael Myers is going to fight, and kill all the QAnon people. Well, there's definitely a real overt message as to what that movie is trying to say. I'd watch it. Right, Just right, saying. Yeah, I'd oh, watch I, it. Oh, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, I'd watch it. I'd get the popcorn. I'd cheer them on. No fucking problem. But, like, the general, like, vast movie audience, like you want to talk about like just giving Fox news, like a talking point served mm-hmm. up on like a silver platter. Yeah. Like th- that's what you would be doing here. And while maybe one QAnon guy dies in a more recent Halloween or Friday, the 13th movie or Freddy movie, whatever it might be having him kill a whole like camp of these people. While I'm not going to lie. I'll tell you, I feel that it's in good taste and I would totally welcome it and root for it and hope to God somewhere down the line, somebody makes an attempt to tackle it, but it really just becomes like a propaganda movie against a certain group of people. And I, as much as like those people deserve it, it's kind of like, I guess just like wrong from a filmmaking perspective, especially if you're going to try to put it out for like a major release. And I I keep going back to the, um, one of the most recent purge movies that I watched, it's not the show. It's, it has to be the, the last purge movie and everything is about like, it's kind of like the border. And I mean, you're really getting like a reflection of America in this um, um, purge anarchy. Ooh, I can't remember. It's the, the title off the top of mm. my head. Like I, I saw it on HB. I saw yeah. it on HBO yeah. and like, like, what I was watching, like, yeah, like, you know, I, I was kind of entertained by it and everything like that, just because I, I do follow politics and stuff, but I just know that it, like, then there's reason that movie didn't make as much as the first one. And that's why it's the purge four or five and not the first one is because these kinds of statements were a little bit more in your face. And I feel for it to work, it has to be done a little more subtly especially when taking a character like Michael Myers or Freddie is like a whole other Freddie might actually be the most difficult to change from uh, hero to uh, or from villain to hero. Yeah. But um, I, I just think that it would be a little bit too much of something that I personally enjoy, but it's, it's just kind of like not a good move as far as filmmaking goes. Right. And uh, the forever purge. Is the Forever most, Purge. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and that's and right. they do, and they actually do get. I I kind of forgot because uh, this these aren't like I've seen I I've seen two I've seen the first two. I'm I'll just open up the 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 pages to them right now. I've seen the first two, and I kind of forgot that they actually get more openly political. Each mm-hmm. one gets progressed. Like the the second one, the Purge Anarchy, it's a huge American flag. 
um, yeah. on the cover. The the Purge election year. Well, it's called the Purge yeah, election year. Right. Um, yeah. And one of the um, one of the purgers is like looks like uh, Lady Liberty. Um, okay. And then this the first purge is I think one of the, that's I haven't seen it, but I think that's one of the ones that's like the least political. And then the Forever Purge, you have a, like, like a cowboy sitting on a fucking you know like a horse draped with the American flag. So yeah, the, the first one is definitely the least political of the of the subsequent sequels and stuff like that of the of the four and there is definitely a political element in there but i mean in all reality it's just about like these this family trying to survive the night and stuff it's like ethan hawk and his family trying to to get through the night of the purge as the purge um becomes like more like popular i guess with the culture or something like that in, in the, the sequels that's when it um that's when I feel it starts to really kick it into high gear with the, the political stuff. And that's probably why mm-hmm. I've only seen the first one and like, just, you know, I haven't really been too invested in the other ones. Right. Same here. I, I've heard the show was not bad. Yeah. You know, I, I think that I have heard a similar thing where the show is actually like kind of worth checking out and stuff like that. And I, I feel that the premise is awesome. Like this is like, I'm surprised this movie wasn't made in the eighties, like with that, with that premise and stuff. Mm. But, um, you know, I, I just kind of don't want to go to the theater and I don't really like want to watch stuff in my house. That's like too much of a reflection of how our current political climate is. Like, yeah. I, I, I remembered watching um, the show. Why the last man that got canceled on FX. So it's yeah. unfortunate because Brian K. Vaughn is from uh, Rocky river. And I, I hate when local people, uh, you know, get things canceled and stuff. But um, I was watching the show and like, it's a really cool and interesting world. And then like halfway through the pilot, we're like rhinos and we're like, Oh, okay. So I've already identified Megan McCain, Marjorie Taylor green and somebody else, you know, like all right there. And I'm not going to lie. Like it was, it was a little bit of a turnoff to hear the same kind of buzzwords that like, you know, naturally get your attention online, like lives, rhinos, things like that. And have to watch it on television. Like I, I'm not saying that like I go to the theaters for this complete escapism from the world around me because I, I do appreciate solid commentary on the world, but I just don't want it to be like super in your face. Like if the boys starts really, we we, we get it. Homelander is like a Trump allegory, but let's tone it down the next season. Like I feel that you've made every statement that you could possibly make in this past season with Homelander as an allegory for Trump, there literally can't be anything else. You know, you, (laughs) the funny thing is, um, there's a lot of conservative people online that still, and I'm, I'm being very serious when I say this, there's a lot of people, conservative people online that still don't understand that Homelander is a villain. Yeah. Yeah. Oh Yeah. Completely believe that. I 100% understand that. Definitely. That makes all the sense in the world. Just like, like, I mean, really like they, like, um, Homelander and, um, Soldier Boy are like more than just like memes. Like they, they kind of like, they're like, oh, I get it. I'm like, you get it? You, you shouldn't get it. I mean, I suppose you should get it, but like you shouldn't get it in the way that you're getting it. Right. That's exactly right. Because that's not what it is at all. And like, it couldn't be any more obvious 
that Homelander is a bad guy, but you're choosing to see him as a good guy because he personifies this America first shit and power and all this stuff that they think that they got with Trump. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it is very, very disappointing. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> but not surprising. So whatever. Right. Exactly. That's how most of the po- politics stuff is not yeah. surprising and depressing. So mm-hmm. moving into the Spielberg era, which begins in 1975 with a little release called jaws and goes all the way through 1998. So the release of jaws kicked off a whole new era of the monster movie. What are three things about monster movies in the Spielberg era that are different from the previous two eras? Yeah, I'll, I'll go through these a little bit more quickly. Um, I think the most obvious one the monsters get less backstory than they've mm-hmm. ever gotten before in these movies. Um, Jaws in particular, what's its backstory? There isn't. Um, there just isn't right. one. Um, there's also like a really big leap, um, obviously from like the 50s to the 70s, but even from the beginning of the Spielberg era to the end of the Spielberg era, a huge leap in special effects technology. Um, so the creatures become more elaborate simply because we can make them more elaborate. Um, even though it didn't work out in Jaws, which actually worked for the better for that movie. But, um, Mm -hmm. you know, there's at least were attempts made, even at the beginning of this era, to do more technically complicated stuff. And then there's, I think, this kind of, to me, this this kind of makes sense, because this era lines up with the end of the Hayes Code. There is a very particular viciousness and a level of violence that we really hadn't seen in monster movies prior to 1975. Um, and the, you know, the Hayes code kind of gets dropped by like the late sixties. Um, and that right. would kind of make sense that the first wave of monster movies made post Hayes code would be very violent. Right. Exactly. Yes. That is, I'll start off with the two that I had, which was definitely the violence. The violence thing is through the roof mm-hmm. with these movies. I mean, this is where monsters tearing people up. I mean, like, and a lot of this is because of the advance, you know, the Hays Code. And then we could also see people getting torn to shit mm-hmm. because of the advancements in um, in special effects and CGI and all that stuff, for sure. It's almost like the technology met this, like, demand from yep. the audience that is just like, all right, guys, we are having monsters in movies now, and we are just straight going to fuck shit up. <laughs> that is yep. for, for sure on that one. Yeah, totally. The origin story thing, I think, is very interesting because you're right. Like there Jaws, just it's a shark in this part of the country. You know what I'm saying? Like there is I don't think there's anything beyond a sentence or two in there. And I don't even think we're getting a sentence or two that describes how Jaws would have even got into that section of the country and stuff like there's in a movie today. You would learn that, um, okay, these sharks are really in the middle of the Atlantic, but because of climate change or because of a drilling thing or something that's out there, he started to move. You might actually get a chart in there that describes like how Jaws got its way into that part of the country and everything. Uh, well, I mean, coast. right, but they do go there. Like if they're not, they're not foreign to that. I mean, they they see um, they see great whites in the Long Island Sound and shit all the time. It just would have been unusual for one to stick around and hunt in the area right i gotcha gotcha yeah. okay gotcha yeah and like some of my shark stuff like I, we have them out here and you, you would see them from the venice pier right so like to me it's just sharks are in only like in like three places of the united states seaboard to, to, to me which so I, I got bad more... news they're in all of the oceans 
oh, I believe it. Oh, I definitely believe it. But like in my, I guess just in my youth, like I knew sharks were around the Florida area because there's um, beaches that you could go to, like when you get in the water and stuff, you can kind of dig around and like find shark teeth and shit like that. Um, So when it comes to some of the specifics, I just don't think of like that northeastern section of the country having sharks. It just doesn't seem like shark territory to me. But I, I, I know that it is. They're all oh, they're, all, they're all over up there. Um, we got them in the Mississippi, Chama. <laughs> one did, yeah. They're yes, that well, not I, one. We, there's a bunch of the Mississippi. Really? Yeah, they're yeah, all over. Okay. Yeah, I'd, like I guess I'm just missing. I, yeah, I haven't Chum, seen a Shark Week in a very listen, long time. Listen, you got to start watching Shark Week. Yeah, I well, Discovery just merged with HBO, so I could actually finally do that now. Actually, so, actually, take that back. Don't watch Shark Week because it's it's not about sharks anymore. It's about like it, there's there's like um, now like Shark Week includes like stories uh, includes quote unquote documentaries about like essentially what amounts to like the Bigfoot version of sharks popping okay. up in places. So take that back. Don't watch Shark Week. Okay, like I remembered watching it when I was younger, and it was actually cool when I was yes. younger because yes. those things weren't around. But yeah, ever since like the History Channel got that ancient aliens and having conspiracy centered mm-hmm. programming, I guess has become so popular, and it is kind of unfortunate to see that it's worked its way into Shark Week because I yep. honestly thought that that may have been the last, the last pure line of uh, nature kind of programming. I, so yeah, I feel like I feel like animal planet does their own shark week and it is like an actual week of informative programming about sharks okay yeah you know that does kind of sort of ring a bell that animal planet did something like that too it's but just it's been yeah so long since i watched uh the ap that's for sure mm-hmm. but uh yeah I, I know that i need to get a little bit uh, way more knowledgeable with this kind of stuff it's just like it's been so long since i've had to focus on it and like i've hear and see stories about sharks popping up all over the place every now and then. But like, honestly, like it just, I see the headline and just kind of move on. Like, Cause I kind of safely assume that because of global warming, sharks would just be pretty much everywhere now. So. I, I mean, basically they're, they're some of their inner high schools now, right? Yeah. They're <laughs> dealing drugs to our kids. Hey, I can only imagine what some shark coke must be like. It's gotta be amazing. L- <laughs> Listen, we got to build that wall because the sharks are coming across. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and just wait till they find themselves a Sharknado and get the jump over the wall. Yep. <laughs> Build a wall for sharks. That's really good. <laughs> really good stuff right there. All right, yeah. So you're um so definitely you're sorry, get to back on that. I'm just now having visions of sharks jumping over what the border wall looks like and it's too funny. It's hard for me to get out of this world, but I'm going to try. And um, so, yes, I agree with you. The the violence, the special effects, the origin stories, everything, all that is 100% right. Um, the only other thing that I had to add on to that was um, we're starting to see genre monsters kind of cross over into other genres. Like we're starting to see um, like little bit more in, in comedy and everything like yeah. monsters in some way shape or form are becoming um protagonists of the movies if it's animated movies and stuff like that so the idea of the monster just completely blew up in the spielberg era and everything where if it was only yeah. reserved for one section of, of cinema it has now worked its way into just about every section of cinema i, I think you can actually thank spielberg directly for that with et Oh, I could, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, definitely. Like that E.T. just being such a freaking landmark movie and everything like that and actually having 
audiences like I did as a kid cry my brains out at the story of of uh, of E.T. Like mm-hmm. that is that's a landmark right there. That's yep. kind of like one of those like how 97 was a watermark year. E.T. was definitely a uh, a watermark movie in terms of expanding the the role of monsters and creatures in film mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely, dude. And um, this era, we saw the rise of what I'm calling franchisable monsters. Yes. I'm sure somebody else used that other term before I did. And like we have the xenomorph and we have predator in this in this era. So what um, do you think about? Sorry. Why do you think these two monsters have sustained such longevity in the movie business over the years? I, I think there's I think there's some really um they they un, not unintentionally I shouldn't say unintentionally because these creature designs were very purposeful, but they just sort of hit a home run with their first film iterations, in that they're highly highly recognizable and unmistakable monsters. I mean, these are two of the all time greatest monster designs period that, that have ever existed on film. Um, they have great deep mythologies, and they they kind of you know just the the way that they were the way that they were created just leaves the door open for them to appear in a lot of different iterations as as we have seen. And then we're also kind of getting at two different branches, really kind of three different branches of horror, but I'll kind of stick to two. Uh, the predator action horror, right? Like that's mm-hmm. that's exactly what that is. So you, right. you have something that's ready made for um, you know, for a Hollywood blockbuster. And then Alien, the Xenomorph, more body horror and psychological horror, but definitely more body horror. In a very in a very different way, you know, a non Cronenberg body horror. Um, so you have like two very big branches of the horror tree covered with two very recognizable monsters with deep mythologies that you can ap- make them appear in almost any situation. Yeah, dude, I hit on the appearing in any situation and stuff. I agree with you all the way that these are the most recognizable monsters in all of like cinema history by far and away. And I cannot wait to get my ass to the HR Giger exhibit up in Hollywood at the Vogue museum to kind of check out some of the Xenomorph stuff. And yeah, awesome exhibit. Like I'll tell you all about it as soon as I go. But, um, these like by far and away just have this iconography about them that is like unmistakable. And like, we as a culture like tend to gravitate towards things that are iconic and if things that are iconic, the only way that it really stands to tell if it is iconic or not is if you could use it in like multiple situations and stuff. And like, Mm -hmm. if you're talking the alien franchise, I mean, you were like looking at like alien, which is awesome. Did great, great reviews. Sets a whole freaking tone of like a psychological horror, all this stuff like really opens the door there. Mm -hmm. But you could take that same thing, give it to James Cameron and have him put it, give him a bunch more xenomorphs. And then you have an awesome sci-fi action horror movie that has action horror, body horror, all this kind of stuff in it. Mm-hmm. You know, So there's a lot that you could really do with these monsters. Like I labeled as they are very transferable. Yeah. And you could transfer these monsters into almost any given situation as long as it aligns with the mythology and the – kind of rules and things that were established in the earlier movies. Like you could take like predator, we're not going to do predator because we'll talk about that in the next question. Mm-hmm. But um, if you take alien, for example, like the xenomorph could work, it could work in space on a ship. It could work on a crazy ass planet. It could work in a prison planet. So that mm-hmm. is abandoned and stuff like that. And then with this whole Noah Hawley series that we're about to see, it may even work here 
on Earth. It might it so, might even work without the xenomorph. Yeah, that's yeah, that's true too. It might even work without the xenomorph because that's how rich the world and the mythology is. Yep. Like the whole thing with like Whale and Yutani and everything. That is like you know, you don't need to like take a tour of the Whale and Yutani offices in any of these movies to understand that Whalen Yutani is like the evil corporation right. and everything like that. Like Paul Reiser's character, which still surprises me that fucking Paul Reiser ended up in Aliens. <laughs> like his character right then and there says it all. Like you know everything you need to know about Whalen Yutani while learning everything you know need to know about Burke and, yep. and Aliens and stuff like that. So these characters can be taken anywhere, taken from their original worlds and inserted into any kind of situation provided that the writing is good and that the story works. Like it's really amazing how these monsters can do that. And it, and it feels like organic. And oftentimes it feels more organic than just plucking Jason Voorhees or Michael Myers. And now it's, you know, Michael Myers on campus or Jason Voorhees in Jason takes Manhattan, which I know I have to rewatch and stuff like Mm -hmm. that because I know it's aged well, but it feels a little bit more reasonable to go from um, one xenomorph on a on a spaceship to a planet that's been overrun by xenomorphs. Then it it, it feels less organic taking Jason Voorhees from Camp Crystal Lake and putting him on the streets of New York is what I'm saying. Yeah, or or taking or you're going to try to tell me that Leatherface is controlled by the CIA question mark I think is in one of the sequels I wouldn't be surprised I definitely would not be surprised by that that sounds like something that they would go and this they did the same thing with Michael Myers being controlled by a secret devil cult and stuff like that yeah. but I I will say I do have a special connection to Halloween 6 cuz it's the first one I ever saw in the theater so I'm a little bit more right. defensive about that particular movie just out of nostalgia but if you when you look at the core of what's going on there it is a little fucked up definitely yep. Yep. <laughs> it definitely is so um keeping in the family of alien and predators I have to ask this like I just need to have some prey talk in some way, shape or form. So um, without making this entire episode about prey, which I could have easily done, what is one thing you think prey did right when compared to the other, other predator sequels? Yeah. What it did, it, um, it actually, it followed the blueprint of, or it followed one, one of the things that predators from 2010 with Adrian Brody, yeah. One of the things that it did correctly was sort of scale back yep. what it was going for. I mean, there's still plenty of special effects and it's, you know, it's on, that's the one that's on the alien hunting planet. Right. But it sort of scaled it back and made it a little bit more simplistic. And this went even further because it had to, because it takes place in like the 17, uh, what, 1713, 1719, 1719. Um, so we had to scale back a lot of stuff that was present in some of the really bloated you know, what be it AVP, uh, Predator Two, um, then mm-hmm. the the ones the the bizarre ones that are like really not canon for either the AVP Requiem and uh, I forgot the other one, but um, they they scaled back from making things more ridiculous and made it so we had so we now we're focusing once again like in the original we're focusing on the the quote unquote prey um, in this case Naru and Tabe more you know most specifically. We're focusing on how they are going to turn the tables on the predator. Like 
instead of what's the next kill what's the big set piece what's the action sequence right let's go back to what the characters are doing in response in the same way which which made the original great what are the characters doing in response to what the predator is doing dude i went with the same thing i actually said the phrase stripped away all of the gimmicky bullshit yep because that is exactly what prey did and like while i did like the robert rodriguez predators from like 2011 2010 it's it's basically like you know kind of like the most dangerous game but it's on Mm -hmm. the alien hunting planet and stuff like that the shane black predator like which i think is just predator or something like that it's like i just call it the shane black predator that was one of these okay, let's get all the fucking set pieces. Let's try to make something that we could maybe sell via YouTube clips or something like that. You know, let's try to take everything that is wrong about the Predator movies and put it into one movie. And I think that the gimmick in that one was the uh, big, giant, colossal, like, super Predator, which we hadn't met in any of the um, previous installments and everything. And, like, they loaded it up with all this shit that... I think they thought that people wanted to see as a way of like pushing this particular franchise. Like, okay, this is what we're going to do now. Big, huge ass predator, which I, I, I got to tell you, I didn't really have a, a strong, um, that wasn't on my list of things to see with no. the predator movies. I was more interested in just getting a decent movie than I was in all this gimmicky bullshit. And like what you got with prey is just like, this is like what it's all about here. And I'll tell you, so like, instead of, um, you know, it being a a bunch of like, you know, trained military guys in the jungle, let's make it like a native American tribe from way back when. So we have more primitive weapons. The, the, The situation is almost way more deadly than what we got in the original Predator, because like even though the, they did a really great job with the, the actual monster in Prey by making that um, character a little less evolved than some of the Predators that we saw um, in the previous installments, the weapons yeah. weren't as as crazy and everything like that. You know, it wasn't a lot, but there was definitely um, you, there were some things like the the three dots, but there wasn't like you, you awesome had to keep the you weapons. had to keep the triple dot targeting system. It's like one of the most iconic. Right. It's, you know, one of the more iconic things about the Predator. But, you know, no, yeah. no, no shoulder cannon. Um, you know, the even the um, the invisibility was a little bit more simplistic and wasn't quite right. as sophisticated. Like, yeah. So, like, they really like they gave us like what like, they gave me what I wanted, which was just a straight up humans versus Predator story. And they really did it in this way where like. I, I just thought they had no chance. <laughs> like, I mean, how, are, how in the hell were people back then going to fight a predator? And well, we learned how they did it in the movie and they did a fucking amazing job of it. And like, I'm almost just like, why didn't you guys do this like a long time ago? Like <laughs> yeah. I could have, I, I could have done without AVP, AVP Requiem. I could have done without the Shane black predator. Like this is like what, this is like what we've been waiting for in terms of the, the the predator movies. And this is like, not like what the studio thinks that we want, but what we actually want. Yep. And they, they did a really great job of doing when they did, when they did a nod to any of the other movies, it wasn't overwhelming and obvious. Right. That they were nodding at the other movies. The most obvious, the most obvious thing was like the most obvious one was the, if, if you're really into the Predator stuff, which I was, as soon as I saw 
even before um, we get the extended scene later, but um, as soon as I, the Italian man began talking to her in the French camp, I was mm-hmm. like, oh, well, this is Raphael Adelini. He's going to give her a pistol at some point. Um, yeah. And sure enough, then the pistol appears. Um, so, like, I mean, that was the most obvious call out, but that was one that was more for people like me that I would have, I saw that one coming before it actually happened because I'm a fan of this. But yeah. there, the other call outs, like, you know, Tabe gets the good line. He gets the, if it bleeds, we can kill it line. Um, that's not too, you know, you're, you're not like, it comes and you're not like expecting it. It just comes and you're like, right. oh yes. All right. So we, we worked that line in perfect. Um, there's even a call out to predators. Do you know what, you know what that was? Uh, which one was that? The helmet, the predator is wearing, um, underneath like the targeting one, the, mm-hmm. the sort of, um, or no, sorry. It is, it is part of the targeting one. Excuse me. But, um, the sort of the, the white part of the helmet is the skull of the creature that they kill in Predators by the river. Oh, really? Yeah, that's like chasing Topher Grace. Oh, that's cool. I did not notice that. That's awesome. Like, again, like a little call out to Predators, one of the better ones of this franchise. And, but like, it's not overwhelming. Like you're not, your attention isn't being called to it. Right, right, exactly. While as the other, um, the other movies, I feel like that they would call attention to those kinds of things and stuff. And those things would be huge elements of the story mm-hmm. and like Easter egg listicles being written all over the place by your entertainment outlets and stuff like that. Like those would be major things, but here they just seem to work and flow naturally with the story almost mm-hmm. to the part where they just look like they fit. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Hell yeah, man. Definitely. No, I agree with that entirely. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I did not notice that for sure. So in this um, in this Spielberg area era, not only monsters blowing up, but just horror itself blows up. And we have all yeah. different kinds of genres being birthed during this era. And one genre that we saw, which we've talked about often, is the, the slasher genre, which um, also kind of came came to life during this particular mm-hmm. era though we saw it in psycho but this is the area the era that the slasher really comes yeah to life. really blows up here so in terms of like the horror itself what is one advantage that the monster movie has over the slasher so the slasher is just very limited as as a villain like mm-hmm. as as we have as to use a word that you and i like it the slasher is way less transferable we just right. we can't make Jason can only appear in so many iterations before it becomes absurd. And they did become absurd. Specifically the one where Jason, was it Jason X, Jason in Space? Um, yes. Like, that one is particularly absurd. But, <laughs> right. but, you know, like, you know, there are some other iterations of it that are, you know, some sequels of it that are okay. But even, like you said, even Michael Myers starts to like, you're like, Jesus Christ, how many movies can this supposed human, I mean, we do know that he's a human being. Like right. we we've, we've right. established that in the very first one. How he's got to he's going to be like eighty soon. So like, how many more times can he pop up and kill everyone? <laughs> no, that's exactly right, dude. Yeah, like they really were burning that um, candle for all that it's worth and stuff like that. Like, just how many of these fucking times can this guy actually like pop up and stuff? And the the the, the franchise is still going, so a lot. Yes, <laughs> you know. Yep. <laughs> right. No, d- definitely. Yeah, like the slashers itself, like. Were, were not transferable at, at all. Or like if they did it, it wasn't as organic as the, the Xenomorph and, and the, the Predator and everything like that, for sure. Mm. And like, and like yeah, I could definitely see that as being one advantage that the, um, 
the monster movie had over the slasher was this element of transferability. Like I went with, um, I basically just went with the fact of like the spectacle here. Like when it comes to like, I know that like, yeah, like maybe people, a bunch of people getting killed in the slasher might be like the horror spectacle, but in terms of like actually doing something really crazy and different on screen like it's the monsters all the way because there's just way more creativity that you could get out of the monster movie situation than you can out of the slasher like the slasher is just basically guy who's bad kills people number one how many people does he kill and where does he do it and how does he do it and that's why you notice like in the slasher movies the body counts like progressively go up the situation maybe gets more recognizable depending on the the time and stuff like that you know with michael myers started off at the night of babysitting and then working all the way up to like high school parties shit like that so like you know it's like, yeah, we're just basically taking him and making and putting him into a situation that's more relevant with the times. But when it comes to like the monsters and stuff, like you could, number one, transfer them organically and you don't have to be reliant on like the body count thing and stuff like five people could die in alien one and five people could die in alien seven or whatever. It doesn't, the body count is completely insignificant when it comes to the, the monster movie and mm-hmm. stuff. But, like, you really could go with – you could do more cool things with the monster than you can the slasher, just to put it simply, yeah. in, in terms yes. of, like, spectacle and stuff. So oh, that is sure. one advantage that the monster movie has over the slasher. But is there any advantage that the slasher movie has over the monster movie in terms of horror? Yeah, you can you can make the horror a little bit more relatable when it's yeah. essentially, you know, whether or not – whether or not um, you know Michael Myers is in quote is in fact the personification of evil is besides the point. He's still a human being, so right. we can still kind of assign more relatable human traits to him. Um, you know, human motives to him. I'll actually use Scream as an example um, because Scream really works, and really more, more specifically the first movie. Scream really works because one, we know everyone knows that the killers are in their midst. It's right. It's not some supernatural force. It's one of their friends, and they know it's one of their friends. Um, and, and so that gives you this sort of element. You know, obviously this element of like fear it could be anyone around you, but it also like okay, if it's one of their friends, why are they doing this? And so we get this very you know interesting motive of, of revenge in the case of um, what's his name? Is it Billy? Billy Loomis, Skeetal Rich. Yep. Yep. Yeah. We so we get this really interesting revenge motive of, of Billy, like you know his her mother. Um, you know, sleeping with his father, breaking up their marriage and kind of fucked him up, whatever. But mm-hmm. also, but also it builds, you know, we, we also, because we have two killers, we also get, you know, the, the sort of, um, and this is definitely something that Kevin Williamson has said before that the ki- Billy and God, what the hell's, um, what's his Stu, face? Matthew Lillard, Stu Mocker, Matthew Lillard. Yep. Thank you. Yeah. Stu, Stu and Billy are also gay, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. they're not explicitly gay and obviously billy is dating um is dating uh sydney prescott but like kevin williamson wrote these as like wrote billy and and Stu as gay and Stu as sort of the i will like he's so romantically in love with billy that he'll do anything he wants and so we get the character driven by revenge and the character that is in love with someone you know that is being blinded by love doing weird things so like 
we get these very interesting human different motives that you don't get with a fucking monster. Right. The human element of it is a big one. It's like the big difference and stuff. And like, you make a really, really good point about Scream and everything like that. And um, your one interesting factoid is in the uh, screenplay itself, which which I read not too long ago, the description of Stu is just like a wannabe Billy or something like that. It's like somebody who's so infatuated with Billy mm-hmm. but will never be him kind of thing. It's like two cents worth of description. So the whole um, – the two of them being gay – Completely believe it. I mean, that's it's almost like in the, the the script itself, and like there's a little bit more in the script that I think maybe shows it. It's not much, maybe like a line or two or three, but it, there's definitely a little bit more in the script. And um, I think that that's a really really great point. And like the slashers, like they're they're trying to like it is horror, but it's like a different kind of horror. And they're I think they're trying to say something completely different with a slasher that is a like. I know that the monster allegory could, you know, could be that the the monsters are allegories for different things, but I feel that like the slasher and the human touch maybe allows it to connect with the audience more and to present a different kind of horror is what is what I'm saying. So like, yeah, if, if we're doing like, Halloween, for example, or even like, well, let's just like, just stick with screen here and stuff. Like the idea that, uh, you know, us being in high school and, uh, Dave Edwards being a serial killer or something like it just plays into like, you know, like, okay, is that guy a killer and stuff? Is he going to come after me? Like it takes these situations that we see in the movies, but it's a movie, but it's also like, kind of sort of something that could happen to any of us really like even in halloween like the idea of the suburbs not being safe and a mass serial killer on the loose in the suburbs like there are serial killers all over the country right now that are active i just found out about one in stockton california yesterday so like there it plays into these like societal fears that we all have and by having the slasher being somebody that's human i, I think it just it shows us like this uglier side of humanity, thus creating more fear in us um, about our fellow our fellow humans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also giving the like in like in Psycho, giving the um, also presenting you with this idea that like it it doesn't have to be some gruesome person or some dis, you know right. some disgusting monster. It is just a very normal looking person is is behind a normal looking person or I should say like an unremarkable person with an unremarkable job and an unremarkable life is the person that you should be scared of. Right. That's exactly right. Almost kind of like a, you never know who it could be kind of thing. So always be scared Mm -hmm. type type of message and stuff like that. Exactly. And like, you know, it just shows, I, I personally think that this is almost like a, um, like a nod to the genius of horror itself is that, there are so many different things for us to be afraid of or things that we should be concerned about when it comes to like fear and like what we can or should be afraid of that. Like you could like just the, 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 the horror genre itself just like really, I think does um, has so much to offer in terms of like what we can be afraid of that goes beyond just like, hey, here's a monster, like how it was in the, like, here, here's Frankenstein, be afraid, you know, like, and the horrors just evolved in so many different ways and so many cool, interesting ways that 
you know, like they to address the fact that we that the, the guy behind the, the store at the, at the the bank could be a serial killer. I think it's something that, you know, is something that we should maybe ask ourselves via the form of a movie. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Of course. Hell yeah, dude. So we just got a couple more questions in this section. So the Universal Monsters at this point in time, like as we know it, the Universal Monsters were yeah. long gone. But yeah. vampires, Frankenstein, werewolf, they were still making an appearance on the big screen every now and then. So how – so just give like an example of – and if you have a movie, totally cool, um, of how like the vampire movie evolved from the early monster movies to the Spielberg era. Yeah, I, I'll actually have a, a few movies here for you if you want. Um, the the vampire is able to break out of its Victorian Victorian era shackles, like yes. the, the the personification. Of, you know, obviously they did tease. They had done different vampire stuff. Um, you know, in between um, this era and the and the the early era, um, but really by the time we get to the Spielberg era, we have a very different take on vampires. We have all kinds of vampires. We have the punk kid vampires from Lost Boys. We mm-hmm. have sexy vampires in Once Bitten, and which is also comedy vampires. Um, right. And 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 the Hunger too. We have sexy vampires with David Bowie. Um, we have B movie drifter vampires in Near Dark. Um, and then the vampire that might not even actually be a vampire. So like the vampire psychological horror from Vampire's Kiss. Like there's all sorts of, there's all sorts of like different, we're, we're filtering this character into all sorts of different, um, you know, different personifications. And we're getting away from like the, the, the older man in his castle with his brides, um, coming out at night to, to drink your blood. Like that's (laughs) kind of gone. Right, exactly. I had a similar thing. I mentioned the Lost Boys, like where this character just blows up in every way, shape, or form. It is no longer the dude in the castle. Vampires could be just about every fucking thing that you could possibly imagine and stuff. Teenagers, old people, mm-hmm. whatever it is. And like one movie that I think is um, particularly interesting when it comes to um, a take on vampires is this movie called Life Force. It's a um, it's a movie from 1985. It was directed by Toby Hooper um, and it's adapted by uh, Dan O'Bannon is actually like a part of this movie. And it's Vampires in Space. And oh this movie yes, was, yes um, yeah yeah this movie was um i didn't see it at the new beverly because um i just jess and i got in a fight on the day that i went to see dark star so i had to kind of go home and lick my wounds uh, so like i um i sat through dark star and did not make it through the um the, the second feature at the new beverly that night but i did watch it on tubi or something like that like the next mm-hmm. day for the for fucking seventy space vampires, this is awesome, and it's such a completely different take on vampires. Like, you get you get bats; they are awesome looking like space bats, and it's really sweet in the beginning. Uh, the vampires itself, like, there's not a lot of like fangs and neck sucking and all this stuff. They're basically like sucking the life force out of you, which is why it's called life force. But it's such a interesting and cool take on vampires that we would never get this in the previous two eras. It would be more or less like different. Maybe, maybe it's not a castle. Maybe it's just a really big house on the top of a hill mm-hmm. or something. It'd all be in the same neighborhood as what we saw with the Bell Lugosi Dracula. So in the eighties and seventies, eighties, nineties, I mean, this just, this just blew up in so many ways. And once bitten is the, uh, is that the Jim Carrey movie or is that Robert Sean Leonard? Uh, Jim Carrey. 
Okay, that's right. Yeah, yep. that's right. Yeah, so there's a movie called My Best Friend is a Vampire with yep. Robert Sean Leonard that came out around like the, the same about the same time. time. Yeah, like both, both um, Hollywood was betting on both Robert Sean Leonard and Jim Carrey, and <laughs> uh, and believe me, Robert Sean Leonard has had a great career in movies. Didn't quite become Jim Carrey. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's so crazy to just to see the old like watching that movie which I, I did watch like right around the time i saw uh, ace ventura and stuff and it's just like wow like jim carrey was in things before in living color and ace ventura came yep. out. It's, it's kind of unusual to think about that mm-hmm. but um but yeah you're right vampires just totally blew up all over the place and um one thing i did notice when i was scrolling through the, the different lists of the, the monster movies like the, some of the links that i sent you was there's not a lot of mummies um, being made in, <laughs> nope. in this time. So I just want to like take a couple of minutes here and just, why do you think that is like that? They just not as many mummies as the other monsters. Yeah. To, to get this right. It is a really, really fine needle to thread. Like mm-hmm. it, it, like we saw the best version of this more recently with the Steven Summers. Um, vampire or uh, vampire, uh, the Stephen Summers, the Mummy movies, and yeah. realistically, only the first one is really any good. Um, right. They and they they just kind of go off the rails from there. And believe me, I Brendan Fraser is great in all of them, but he, by the third one, he's like half asleep. Um, <laughs> but it's just it's such a hard needle to thread, and like I, I guess it's like you said, you mentioned before, like a, a shambling mummy isn't particularly scary. Steven Summers figured out a way to kind of jazz it up. And, and Arnold Vosloo was a really good uh, mummy um, stand in. But like, I, I think we, we also like have very brief periods of interest in Egyptology and we mm-hmm. are currently not in one. So why would we make any, you know what I mean? Like, Oh yeah. It's, it, it, it kind of comes and goes. Um, and certainly when the original mummy would have come out, like in the 1930s, we were very into Egyptology as, as, as a society, especially in, especially in the Americas and in Western Europe, very into Egyptology. I mean, Germany stole all of Egypt's fucking monuments and important artifacts and all kinds of shit from them. Um, right. we're very into it. And, um, even, even prior to that period, um, you know, a lot of the, uh, during the Victorian era, when a lot of these stories and things would have been would have been written, people were into Egyptology. But we just have gone through a time period, recent, you know, you know, with with the other than the brief period where the mummy movies were kind of you know were kind of hits, we really have gone through a long period of time where we just aren't into Egyptology right now. Yeah, dude, like that's a great point. I didn't even think about that. Like my personal like one sentence take on this answer was just there's only so much you could do with mummies slash mummies are lame now. <laughs> like, yeah. And, um, but this Egyptology thing is, I think it's a really interesting point that you make because there are just these times like where it feels like we're into something like society is into something as a whole. And you're right back in the day, like when the older movies were being made, like there's probably a huge like investment in getting to know about the culture of Egypt, you know, especially with the, the, uh, what is it? The, the Nazis like taking all their stuff and everything. Mm-hmm. This is kind of the, around the time when like, you know, you may be able to like photograph the pyramids and get footage of the pyramids and stuff like, you know, which yeah. people knew about the pyramids, like via the history books and school and stuff like that. But it wasn't like people really got to see them in, in the, like, you know, what were good cameras and good footage for the time and stuff. You'd probably be looking at those like, daguerreotype things you mm-hmm. know like mm-hmm. just 
and not to mention like when you get to see something in live action where it's film, it's like a whole completely different experience. So there, for the most part, there's probably a lot of America that is experiencing Egypt for the first time via like the mummy movies and stuff. And like, you know, I'm not going to say that like, it's definitely Egyptian history and culture is definitely interesting. 100%. But like, you know, we, we kind of know what we need to know right now. You know, there, there hasn't been anything like newer discovery wise, or I, I, for the most part, I don't even think Egypt has had any real conflicts or anything. There's just like no real attention for the world to like turn its eye to Egypt or Egyptian stuff. Like we know about mummies. We know about the pyramids. We know about the tombs. Like I can't think of them uncovering any pharaohs, tombs recently, stuff like that. So there's just really no reason for us as a, a culture to, to focus on Egypt. I don't mean that in like a derogatory sense to the country, but there's just like there's not much for the public to turn its attention there. Yeah, exactly. It's just, um, you know, when it comes to, uh, you know, when it comes to this, the, the sort of um, the sort of stuff that would make for good um, mythological horror we've kind of moved on to more regional stuff um, yeah. where like, you know, we're, we're, we're getting into more of the, you know, American mythology or, you know, Norse mythology or Asian yeah. mythology. Like we're getting into more, much more regional stuff to pull on, you know, different horror, you know, different horror legends and horror stories. Right. Exactly. Like I noticed, yeah, way more, there's way more Asian mythology and culture um attention right now same thing with the north the norse stuff like yeah yeah you would you would think people just found out about about vikings like oh my god there's like a football team named after these they named a or these people from back then are named after the football team like you there's just so much (laughs) going on when it it comes to like north stuff that we I, i think maybe because like when we are in school like your default kind of history stuff is like you know, the big empires like Rome and Greece, Egypt, like uh, even, and you might correct me if I'm wrong here, which I I feel I might be, is that we didn't really dive into Asian history and stuff all that much. Like I I think the closest we got would have been um, learning about some of like the late, um, I want to, I want to say that they're called the late dynasties in China. Um, Essentially the ones that would have built the, you know, the terracotta armies and the forbidden cities and stuff. Like, but, you know, that's like that. Not, I'm not saying that we're cutting out, but we're kind of skipping past like a thousand years of Chinese history before. Right. Before Emperor Qin even began to unify parts of what would become China. Right. Exactly. And like, I, I even think by the time we got to China in the curriculum, it was either the end of the year or the end of the semester. So it's like you're just it's just something that you, we didn't spend a lot of time on compared to the other civilizations and everything. Like I I don't remember taking a deep dive into the middle East or China until I was in in college and stuff like that with those, with the, you know, Asian and middle East, middle Eastern history Mm -hmm. classes that I took and stuff. So like, um, so I like just assuming that schools today are following a similar model. Maybe they dabble into it a little bit more, but there's since we didn't really focus on that stuff growing up, all this um, newer interest in Asian and Norse mythology and history and civilization stuff like this is all like kind of like newer. You know, it seems like it's uncharted territory for um, for me anyway, like because I know we didn't cover it in high school. Mm-hmm. 
No, we we did not. <laughs> that's that's. I mean, you know, where do you even begin like covering history? But certainly, I, right. I know I knew I knew more about I know more about Rome than I ever really cared to know about Rome. That's for sure. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Exactly. Like a, Rome, Greece, like even some of the Mesopotamia stuff. Like we knew way way more about that. So like. And which is crazy because like one of the only things I can actually remember is Solon, which is the Solon, Ohio. Solon was like a Mesopotamian king. Like that's one of the things that sticks out in my mind. But uh, you're right. We just we kind of knew we got more of those than we did um, Asian and like uh, Viking kind of cultures and civilizations and stuff for sure. So with that, um, we are actually moving into the modern era right now, 1998 through the present time. So in the modern era, monsters are pretty much everywhere. And if you look at the list of Wikipedia monsters, like from 1998 to the present time, that list is substantially longer than any of the other eras um, that are on that particular list and everything. Mm -hmm. So, um, with so many subgenres of horror movies that are out there, uh, where do you think the monster movie fits into the modern horror movie marketplace? It, it is interesting because <clears throat> I, I think we're at a period where I, I, I don't, maybe a comeback isn't the exact right word, but I think we're finding our way back to monster movies again because I, I think again, as especially in American society, but you, you could take this globally too. We're dealing with a lot of stuff that that really is kind of too big to to distill into like you know one drama so like i've noticed that we're getting back to um to monsters as represented representing stuff and i've what i've really noticed is that we've gotten back into lovecraftian monsters um mm -hmm. really taking the spotlight um for you know for not say the first time but like um really really sort of working their way in 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 a way that is like sort of they're not like sort of hiding what exactly is you know the, what they're not like at one point in time you wouldn't say that like this creature was like an hp lovecraft creature simply because like people would like would like sort of like blank out like oh that's fucking nerd shit um, <laughs> some fucking writer from some racist writer from 100 110 years ago like who, who cares um but like it's 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 just interesting now how like they're not hiding that. In fact, like there like there are direct um, you know Lovecraft movies. Uh, color out of space, for example, the monster. Although it's the monster is a color, which is is which is interesting. But color out of space is a Lovecraftian monster. Um, mm -hmm. We've mentioned it before. Uh, the Kristen Stewart movie Underwater is in right. fact Cthulhu. So I mean, it is right. it is a Lovecraftian monster. Uh, the ritual. Uh, which not specifically a Lovecraftian monster, the story very much would line up with something like a Lovecraft story. Um, you know, uh, to, not a movie, but a TV show that it hasn't hasn't right the title that we both watched, Lovecraft Country. All of its right. monsters were Lovecraft were creations of Lovecraft, and you can even you can even take a movie as something like Colossal as having a sort of love. It's a kaiju, but sort of a Lovecraftian sort of tilt as to like what's going on with the monster. Um, in, in terms of it being controlled by someone. And yeah. these are all very symbolic, right? Every single one of these is, is symbolic. So for Colossal, we're talking about relationship and personal issues. Is the, yep. is the, and it, that's literally not even being hidden. They're not like trying to be <laughs> cute about it. Um, in Color Out of Space, family strife is sort of is what the, the monster is representing. Um, Lovecraft Country, racial justice and racial, racial injustice and societal injustice. 
Um, the, the ritual, it, again, they're not hiding this. It's a religious metaphor. Um, underwater is a metaphor about corporate greed. Like the only reason why they're down there is because their company is paying them a fuck ton of money to keep drilling farther and farther into something they know is dangerous. So all of these creatures are very symbolic. And I just think it's very interesting that they're all using Lovecraft monsters. Yeah. Like that is a really, really good point. I mean, these Lovecraft monsters are definitely making, you're right. Maybe a comeback is not necessarily the right word, but it's, they seem to be more apparent now than they, they had before. Like whether it's, I don't people maybe going back and reading more Lovecraft and just kind of separating the art from the person there. But it's, um, or maybe it's just cause he's like one of the like originators of like American horror stuff, I guess. I don't know. One of the like originators that, of cosmic horror. Cosmic horror. Yeah. You bet. Yeah. yeah. So like there's, so yeah, like that is a really great point. And I mean, like there's still, like there's still monsters showing up, which, which I do like. And I, I kind of hope to see a little bit more of it because I, it's just a little like kind of played out on like the small town murder thing. Uh, and I honestly don't even know if anybody's really done it as good as true detective since the the first season of true detective. But I, I just am kind of over some of the, some of the stuff that we've had in, in terms of, like realistic horror, I guess. And considering the amount of shit that we are taking in the world and how monsters can be allegorical for these kinds of things, like having more monsters in the modern horror film marketplace, I'm completely welcome to it. I think that it does have a place. I hopefully the, the place um, starts to starts to get a little bit bigger um, and a little bit more apparent and maybe trump some of these um, kind of like the same stuff over and over again horror. So like I guess I'd rather I'd rather see more of a comeback of monster driven stuff than I would uh, somebody's kid died and you know is in a small town and everything like that. It just seems like we've kind of played that hand for all it's worth mm-hmm. and when it comes to creativity and some of the spectacle, especially with the, like the way that effects are and everything like that. Now, I mean, you could really, you could really amp up the quality of monster movie that, that one could make in this time period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Hell yeah, dude. Like, it's just, I don't know, man. I, I just, me personally, I'm just, I'm just kind of over some of the stuff that we've seen over and over again, which is why I gravitate towards, Eggers is material and Astor's material and like even this like smile movie when I'm, everybody's making it sound like it's the next best thing. It sounds like it's something like original. So I'm, I'm more gravitating towards these kinds of stuff than I am the, the, the real like super popular stuff, which like, I almost feel like, you know, you, you and I could go into any studio in Hollywood oh, yeah. even now and be like small town murder and they'd still like salivate over the shit out of it, even though how much more could we really do there? You know, I, I yeah, I, I don't know. And that's that's a big reason why I originally gravitated towards Benson and Moorhead's movies. I had mm-hmm. truly never seen anything in horror quite like that. And like, I think I think their stuff still stands apart from a lot of other from a lot of other horror, of a lot of other horror movies. There still really isn't anything that has quite hit that pitch yet. Yeah, dude. Like, yeah, definitely. And like, if you're going to make something horror, you might as well just go all out and make it yourself. Like, there's no reason to conform to, like, I guess, like, 
the way I put this is, is like you're, you want to do a Joker here. Joker was a movie that I did not ask for. I was like, yeah, do we really even need this? Like, what the hell's the point? We've the Joker origin story. We've seen it on screen. We've heard about his multiple. We've seen the Joker so much. And then when the movie comes out, I'm like, how did we ever have superheroes movies without this? Like, where has this movie been all my entire life? Mm-hmm. You know? So like, I, I kind of like would, want people to gravitate more towards originality and obscure as shit concepts than just like, all right, like I'm waving goodbye to my kid as he goes to school and we cut to the opening credits. And when we get back from the opening credits, they're gone and now no longer with us movie kicks off. You know, it's just, I, I feel that there's just way people should be going for the way more creative stuff than just some of this played out ass nonsense that we're still continuing to get. Yeah, ex- yes, you were you were absolutely right, but it uh boy, it, it it seems like it seems like we on on the streaming services there is an unending an unending wall of these small town murder mystery horror type shows coming at us still. Yeah, I'm telling you there are things that I scroll through on Hulu and Amazon where I feel like I just know it's one of those just by looking at it, I immediately skip over it. And then after doing that about five or six times, you're like, what the hell, what movies do these streaming services actually offer? <laughs> like what, what fucking, cause there are just some times where like you scroll through Amazon, you scroll through Netflix, like even um, HBO max and you go through the horror section. And there are just times where like for having so many movies to choose from, it's almost like they have nothing like all at the same time. It's just, I'm just, I, it, sometimes it feels like that for me anyway. Oh, it, it really is. I, I, <laughs> I don't want to get, I don't want to get too derailed here, but like I, if you, if I could figure out a way to block all of the, all of the true crime stuff or all mm-hmm. of the small town murder, murder, you know, missing people in a small town genres, I, I would assume that I'd be able to find a lot more stuff that I actually want to watch. Yeah, me too. Me too, all the way. I don't want to harp on that, so let's get because I got that's a tangent worthy subject right there. So I'm just going to go on to the next question here. So, with all the CGI and special effects being the best that they've ever been, how do you define the a solid use of a monster in a horror movie? And give an example. Um, I you know, whenever okay, so this is kind of like the the Supreme Court argument about pornography. I forgot which justice made it. Like, I just, I know it when I see it yeah. and it's kind of one of those things. And I would, I would just to sort of, I'll, I'll get a little bit more precise than that, but it is a sort of, you know, it when you see it and it's kind of like when I, when I get done, you know, when I'm finished with the movie and I'm talking about it with something else, if I fixate on some aspect of, of the monster, like be it its appearance, something it did, whatever it took to kill it, just something mm-hmm. that as it relates very specifically to the monster. If it's something I'm talking about in a positive manner, then they did something, they did the monster right. Then it was used well. Um, If, if I don't really talk about it or I talk very negatively about it, then clearly it's something that they did wrong. Um, So um, I'll give, I'll give a quick, I'll give a quick example. Um, That's not to, not to get like, I'm going to talk about this movie actually in a little bit, but uh, a little bit later. But in the movie uh, Mimic, um, one of the cool... It's, it's a definitely a very aggressively okay kind of horror movie. Sci-fi horror movie. Um, and one of the cool things that they did, though, was sort of making these um, making these giant bugs look like people. And it, hence the name of the movie, Mimic. 
um, just sort of the way that they have like a, a shell that looks like a human face and like the way that uh, Mira Servino's character, whose name I can't think of right now, kind of like is looking at it like in this like these Polaroids on, on a train or whatever. Um, just the way she looks at it, I'm just like, oh, that's cool. Like that was a cool mm-hmm. little touch here for how we're going to dive into like what these what these monsters are. Yeah, I gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand what you're saying. Definitely, dude. I haven't seen Mimic in a very, very long time, but I get what you're t- totally talking about. Making the insects look like people and stuff it does give like an, a little bit of a unique kind of monstery design, and while also making some kind of like statement all at the same time. It sounds like for fucking sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when um, like I get what all the way all the way and agree with everything that you said about like, you don't really know until you're talking about it or you just kind of know it if you see it type thing. And like, I am in this camp as well. And the, the movie that I'm going to give an example of is, um, is we're going to talk about Nope here for just a second. And I'm not going to give, I'm not going to do any like details enough to like spoil it for you or anybody Mm -hmm. else out there. But like, Nope does this monster awesomely. And like you get to see two forms of the monster, which both look really, really cool. Um, it's so cool that it totally threw me off as to what it actually was. And Jordan Peele did his job in that regard. So like you, the final form of the monster is, it's like beautiful. Like there's really no other fucking way to describe it other than beautiful. Like it's it's menacing, but in a very, very beautiful way. And like. If you have seen the movie Midnight Special without getting into too much of what the monster looks like, there's just the buildings at the end of Midnight Special and this kind of futuristic kind of appearance is sort of in line with like the monster in its final form and nope and everything like Mm. that. But there's way more to be uncovered there. So don't don't. Tip of the iceberg as far as like the monster's appearance, especially because it changes even in its final form, which is just where I will leave that. The one thing that I do respect about Nope, as far as a modern monster movie goes, which um, I loved and in many ways I might even think might be the better storyline, is uh, they found a way to have this be a monster movie, but there's like... I think probably like the sea story with Stephen Yuen with Stephen Yuen, right? Like Glenn Yoon. from Yoon, Yoon from The Walking Dead. Yeah. Um, his story and there's a little bit of a, a monster esque element in there too, is fucking incredible. And like in many ways, I feel that his part of Nope is just as good as if not better than the a story going on um, with Daniel Kalula and Kiki Palmer and stuff. So um, having a supplemental kind of monster storyline in your monster movie in a modern setting, I think almost like has to be done. Like, I don't know if just jaws, the killer shark is enough in a modern day setting. So while so what, what I'm saying here is just basically more than one monster that is somehow either just as good or if not better than what the actual like what got you into the theater monster supplemented with like just with like really, really cool storyline. So like I, I feel that um the modern day monster movie 
we need a little bit more than just one big scary CGI monster to, to get us through the movie. And Nope offers that and a lot more. I gotcha. I gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely, dude. So what is a uh, horror movie that you've seen in this era where the monster left much to be desired? Um, I'm going to go with one that we've talked about before, and I'm going to go with I Am Legend. Um, it, it's not really about like design, although the design was you know, aggressively okay. It's mm-hmm. how they... The, the decisions they made in terms of deploying the, the transformed people that were sort of uh, vampiric, I guess, in nature, that they took all agency out of them and just sort of made them into a mindless swarm, and right. which would kind of been okay, but, like, then you kind of... We needed to stick with, as I kind of mentioned about, like, sort of the rules or the 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 things that you're setting out in your in your in your monster movie. The fact that we don't see them a lot needed to be then the common thread throughout the whole movie. And as that movie continues, we see more and more and more of them, but without any advancement in them as characters. Whereas in the original cut, as we've talked about before, the especially the main one, and he's the main monster, I don't know what they even called him, but um, the main monster is sort of representative of the whole. The main one has thoughts. The main one has an objective. The main one has a goal. And they cut out that whole story. They cut out that whole part of it because they just wanted to, like the, the studios were like, no, we just, just make them a, just make them a swarm. It's going to come kill Will Smith. Whereas the original idea behind it was much more intriguing. The, you know, the alpha, the leader of this pack coming to get his mate back from Will Smith. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The whole, mindless swarm kind of idea like these you know just basically the prop monsters this is just not going to work anymore it definitely is not and like number one it's just not all that interesting you know even like when you think about the walking dead like the walking dead the zombies are just like an obstacle that the characters overcome every now and then it's like a like a like a complement to their situation yeah. in terms of like danger and everything like that you don't see the like the zombies don't like really have any motivation, but it's not the walking dead really isn't about like the zombies. It's about the characters inside of this zombie apocalypse and everything is actually like when I watched it, it was an extremely character driven show and stuff. They got into crazy action packed situations that involved zombies and they got into some pretty unique ones from the, what I saw in the early seasons, Mm -hmm. but the zombies were just like secondary to what's actually going on. Like the, the human bad guys were like the real bad guys of the stories, the more menacing people, the more fleshed out characters and stuff that had agency that had drive, that had wants and personalities and stuff like that. And I found myself watching the walking dead, not for the zombies, but to see like what the fucking governor was going to do next, you know, it was, it was still one of the best villains that they've ever had on that show. And like, that's what you, like that's what sells nowadays. Like in the earlier days, having a whole bunch of just mindless, scary looking zombies might've worked, but in the world today, it's just really not going to cut it and everything. And that's kind of why movies like I am legend don't really age all that well. And the only thing people are talking about, uh, I am legend even today is how there was a Batman versus Superman logo in the background. Right. So, exactly. Yep. Right. And dude, mine was, Jeepers Creepers. Okay. I got to tell you, like I was 
I was actually kind of hooked on this movie when it was just the the person and like the duster and the jacket and the, the the hat and everything like that. Then once they decided to kick the monster into high gear and it became this more of like a bat type creature, that's just like when you totally lost me because that's when you're overplaying your hand. It's almost like how could we escalate this monster? As if as if the situation isn't like crazy enough already. The monster's got to have more to them, and they decide to give the monster something more, and it just completely falls flat for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I'm yeah. not a fan of when that happens. So Jeepers Creepers, you had me for about an hour into the movie, and then you just completely lost me on that one. And I, I also got this fucking thing with, like, flying monsters. Like, they only work in certain situations, and that is one it definitely did not did not work in at all. And <laughs> why does he need a car if he can fly? Yeah, no shit. That's a really good fucking point. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It, it does, like, I, I always think of Jeepers Creepers, again, as being a very aggressively okay horror mm-hmm. movie. Like, it's to- like if it's on, it's on. I, I'm fine with it. It's totally fine. But, like, the all the choices they made to like make it more human, make the car actually, you know, like they could have made better choices with it, like much better. Yeah, it's just one of those movies from that lost freaking period of time in cinema, the early 2000s, where like there are a lot of movies in that time period where a lot of different and better decisions could have been made. That's mm-hmm. for sure. <laughs> all right, dude. So we're all done with the eras. Let's give a quick recommendation from each one of the eras. We'll go back and forth, starting with the early, um, early horror films. All right. Um, with the early horror films, go ahead and see Dracula from 1931. Um, Bella Lugosi's portrayal is still sort of the, I don't, I don't want to call it the definitive portrayal of Count Dracula or a vampire, but really the staple from which, Every other performance has owes something to this performance in, in 1931. So this is the this is the OG. You will see a piece of almost every single almost every other single vampire movie and TV show has a little bit of Dracula's DNA in it. I completely agree with you. Great selection on that one. I am going to go with the House of Frankenstein from 1944. So early on in the discussion, I. Re- mentioned how like these one monster movies just really couldn't hook me in from the universal area the universal early monster movie era mm-hmm. um the house of frankenstein had frankenstein dracula and the wolfman in it and oh yeah yes yeah, yeah, yeah i was just so happy as a kid to watch more than one monster in one of these movies. This movie fucking stuck with me. Like I can remember the end where the, there's actually people dying in quicksand in the end, which um, we, I, I thought that that would have been more of a threat in my life. I'm not going to lie, especially with the way people were talking about quicksand. When we were younger and like, there is just this compelling love story between what I think is Lon Chaney Jr. who plays the Wolfman in that mm-hmm. movie um, and one of the, the female leads who the Frankenstein monster actually falls in love with and there's this kind of unusual conflict there and like I just like as a kid I was just like kind of blown away by the fact that they did this love story element so well in this movie, I was actually like, just you're, cause you're kind of rooting for Lon Chaney Jr. He's just like a regular guy coming to town kind of thing. He's lost. And then like, he kind of becomes this, um, he kind of becomes like a, like a victim of all this kind of crazy shit that goes on in, um, in the movie and stuff like that. And if I'm not mistaken, I think 
I can't remember if Frankenstein kills him or if he gets away with the girl in the knot. Because I know Frankenstein dies in the end, um, but I can't remember if he takes Lon Chaney with him or if Lon Chaney um, Jr. just kind of disappears with a woman while the, the craziness happens and stuff. But um, House of Frankenstein, if you are like me and just can't focus, can't get through one of those movies because there's only one monster, this one has got a little bit of variety for um, for people to choose from and mm-hmm. for people to, to latch on to. So from from the kaiju era what's your selection uh the blob 1958 and this is what i was talking about before this is a this is a movie where like as you're watching it you kind of forget that the blob is actually even involved until it is um and this is like a great example of the ambition of the filmmaking exceeding the technology like we we don't Mm -hmm. see we get mention of like an asteroid that landed um, we get mention of, you know, like someone, uh, one of the first people that encounters it ends up being obviously absorbed by it. Um, but like, we don't see it happen. It just, you know, just all of a sudden there's a gelatinous, you know, mass in the floor. Um, and then, you know, it takes until like, literally there's like 15 minutes left of the movie for them to figure, you know, as the blob gets bigger and starts absorbing a diner, like how to defeat it. And it's just like, it's just like, wow. And in 80, 84, 85 minute movie, whatever it is. The blob is really only in probably what amounts to fifteen minutes total, um, and oddly, unintentionally has a has a global warming message in it. That a- clear. I mean, it's not a global warming message, but the end of the movie, they freeze the blob, and they it's insinuated that they get the army to come pick it up, and they drop it in the Arctic. And the I can't remember the main character's name says, "Well, it should be okay there as long as the Arctic doesn't thaw," and. <laughs> I'm kind of like, oh, well, if, if only you knew. Right, right, exactly. Oh, my God, that's really, really good. The 80s one is the it's a Frank Darabont movie, if I'm not mistaken, right? Um, I know he is in it um, as yeah, like, the preacher or something like that, but um, yeah. it's probably a Frank Darabont movie. Yeah. I think he's, I think he wrote it or something. He had a hand in it in some way, shape, or form. Like I just something that I just just kind of sticks out in the back of my mind. But like the Blob is just like a classic, and this is one of those. Like I didn't see the the old one from the fifties, but this was a uh, a movie that I was okay to rent as I was a kid and everything like that. So I remember a couple like sleepovers of watching the the nineteen eighties Blob with uh, some of my friends and stuff like that. Which right, um, right. It's <laughs> um looking at it right now. Uh, doesn't give him any writing credits, but he's, I mean, he's in it. Like, I remember Frank Darabont being in it. It's, uh, uh, Chuck Russell. Interesting. Um, maybe, unless that's like a, no, that's a real person. I was going to say, unless it's like a, um, a pseudonym for, um, for Frank Darabont, but it doesn't appear to be. David O. Russell's dad, for all we know. (laughs) No, I doubt that. But he directed the mask. Oh, no shit. Interesting. Chuck Russell, yeah. Anyway, awesome. there you go. Okay, cool. Awesome. Great choice on that one. I'm going with the Godzilla one on this one. I, I had to because this one is fucking really, really good. It's uh, the invasion of Astro Monster. This one was um, like a <clears throat> it's kind of Americanized. There's American actors in it. There's English speaking. There's like little points in time in the movie where they cut away from the the, the stuff in Japanese to go to somebody who's like in a newsroom type setting, giving an explanation in American. It's awesome in the regards that um, Ghidorah is in full force. He's amazing. Um, This is Monster Zero. We go to Planet X. There's an awesome aliens trying to destroy the world and kill people storyline in it. Um, So like there's some horror elements and everything uh, in the movie. It's obviously not what I'm classifying as like a straight up horror movie. 
but in terms of the post 1954 Godzilla still in the show era, this movie, I, I actually think might be like one of the crown jewels of the Godzilla sequels. It is fucking good. And I watched it about a month ago and I still enjoyed it. I, I was, I still was wrapped up in it. It's a really solid one. Very nice. Very nice choice. And how about your Spielberg era choice? I, I already mentioned it. Mimic from 1997. Mimic? Uh, nice. Del Toro's first Hollywood movie. Not his first English language movie, but first like in the Hollywood studio system. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has all of the hallmarks of what makes a Del Toro film. Like it's it's all right here on display for you. Um, it's a film that he disowned for a while because of how much interference um, the Weinstein brothers um, like they, they just they wanted an entirely different movie out of him that he wanted to make, but he was able to make a director's cut uh, some years later that he was really satisfied with. So um, that's that's the one in particular you should watch the Mimic director's cut. So Mimic nineteen ninety seven. Very very good to know. Very good to know. I am going with one that I watched um, actually within the last two weeks, kind of in preparation for this episode. I mentioned it mentioned it in a previous episode. The Relic, dude, it's like if John Carpenter would have directed a straight-up monster movie, I feel it would have been The Relic. Like, when you watch this movie, it's kind of flow with, without the, like, long credit sequence and some of the John Carpenter signature stuff. This movie just really feels like a John Carpenter movie. And, like, since you're coming out around the same time, like, that Vampires came out, there's a similar feel to it, and especially in terms of like the main character, even though there's nowhere near as many um, brutish boner jokes in the relic as there are in vampires. Mm-hmm. And, and like, it's a really cool setting in a museum and stuff. Like there's a slow build on the monster. There's some really, really cool scenes. I thought that I was just, hadn't watched it in like so long and I was a little more impressed than I should have been on the most recent rewatch. So the relic is my selection for the Spielberg era in 1997. I will 100% disagree with you. I hate this movie so much for so many reasons. Um, Tom Sizemore is kind of asleep through it. They have discount Rene Russo and Penelope and Miller. Um, I hate this one so much. <laughs> I got you, dude. I but, got you. I understand. But uh, yeah, go for it. I, I I would tell you as a as a monster movie, something kind of a little bit different. It is different, that's for sure. Um, right. And and the creature design is definitely different. But I kind of hate the rest of this movie. Nope, not a problem, dude. What is going to be your modern era monster movie? Um, I'm going with a a, a, a very recent movie that kind of that got pushed uh, directly to streaming because of the pandemic. It is a fun kind of B-movie uh, horror comedy, more on the comedy side. Uh, it's called Love and Monsters from 2020. Um, it is definitely very much a B-movie. Um, to give a quick synopsis, it's um, an, an asteroid is going to strike Earth and end all life, but we successfully destroy the asteroid. But all the weapons that we use spray chemicals all over the planet and cause all of the cause all of these creatures to like grow into gigantic kaiju monsters. And they just like roam the planet and kind of taken over. And not all of them are good or not all of them are evil, but like they are like, you know, again, like a, a, a like a giant, like a, our main, like the first uh, sort of horror sequence is a giant ant that like cuts someone's head off. Um, so there's some like fun creature designs. Um, it's it's goofy in the in all the ways it's, it's supposed to be goofy. Um, it's got some good action sequences. It's got some re- legitimately good horror sequences. 
and it's got a great use of Michael Rooker. Um, just an, a fantastic. They're just like you know what, Michael Rooker, show up and just play yourself. And he's like, okay, I can do yeah. that. <laughs> so, Love and Monsters from 2020. It's kind of a fun movie. Yeah, I'm looking at some of these <clears throat> monster designs just beyond Google Images and stuff. Some of these are pretty goddamn cool looking. Very cool. Yeah. Really, yeah, really cool, really big, and actually kind of terrifying. Wow, Jesus Christ! Look at some of these things. Wow, very very good selection. I will keep that one in mind to check out. And my modern recommendation, I'm just going to stick with Nope. Everybody get out there and see it. Mm -hmm. Not as good as Get Out, but infinitely better than us. And there is just a lot of things to like about this movie. So everybody get out there and go check out Jordan Peele's Nope ASAP. And it should be, I think we should be getting it on streaming service or at least on at least on digital to rent here pretty, pretty soon. So You would think getting... they would line it up with the, the Halloween season. I would, yeah, I would think so. Like, I just, I, it also, like, this movie came out in July. So, yeah, we're getting about that time. So, it should be available here pretty soon. So, everybody, that is a solid, solid movie to check out. And one of, definitely one of his, uh, out of the three, number two on my list of his, um, his movies for sure. All right. So, we got one final section of this episode, one that I have been looking to forward to very, very much throughout the course of this discussion. We are bringing back a popular well, a segment that we did an episode of. We did a Let's Fix This Shit episode where you and I fixed a whole bunch of different shit in this world, including college football, which I still 100% support your system all the way. We're getting, we're getting closer and closer to something similar every day, and I'm very happy for it oh me too dude you could feel it just inching inching closer to mm -hmm. to that um to that um kind of structure that you had set up and everything which i wholeheartedly endorse and this time around we are going to be fixing the universal dark universe which uh 2017 which to be clear it doesn't need fixing at all but we're gonna do it anyway i mean we're talking right, five so straight years of incredible movies it was perfect in every way shape or form there's no point in us even doing a cinema dissection because all of them were perfect like all the way <laughs> the mummy perfect the invisible man incredible uh jekyll and hyde fantastic um oh wait a second none of those movies came out after the mummy that's right exactly that's right <laughs> they were all fucking shelved exactly so what's going on here is um in this situation in the more recent years universals decide to give this project a, another crack and they're going invincible style bringing on the occasionalist podcast to lead the rebuilding of the dark universe. So what we're going to do is this little bit of a thought exercise here where we're not going to go through a entire slate of all the movies. I should have been clearer on that on the outline. We're just going to pitch the first two movies that would be the building blocks of this dark universe. Uh, the characters that we had available were a vampire, Frankenstein, werewolf, a mummy, creature from the Black Lagoon. Um, you could make one pairing of the monsters together if you decided to do so for your movies. Um, just be sure to select two modern directors to that um, list the directors that you feel would be the best people to direct the movie. And just give a little bit of a brief elevator pitch as to what you would do to, you know, rebuild the dark universe. Mm -hmm. But before... But before we get into the big fix, I just want to ask you, what what is the reason that you think this whole thing failed? I mean, so 
I, I think there's, I mean, there's two reasons, right? Like, the you can really pin it on the fact that the movie itself was just a disaster. Like, it's just not a good movie in any way, shape, or form. Um, it's, it's not compelling. It's not, um, it, it was just a big CGI, you know, fuck fest. It, it just, it, it's just like, okay, who gives a shit? But also, they had so much bad press because of that leaked trailer that had, like, no, that had, like, no sound or, like, the sound was off. Mm-hmm. And it spun itself into so many different memes and little different. It, like, I don't, do you know what I'm talking about? It's. I know the instance that you're talking about. I have not seen the trailer without any sound. I remember the getting ripped to shit and some of the memes and everything like that. I just did not watch the sound. So trailer. I don't even think I watched the trailer at all for the movie. To be honest um, with you, so you don't need to see it. Um, but like, in fact, it's really they went out like on this mission to like scrub every possible iteration of this like of this mishandled trailer basically um all we had were like the voice tracks um were the only thing you could hear in the in the what and what they put on youtube the first time so it was just like um you know tom cruise yell and it wasn't even like i don't even think it was like full lines of dialogue It, it was like them yelling and like you know the the sounds of like struggle and like people falling down and stuff so it was just like a, it was just like this silence, and then you'd see like you know Tom Cruise like jump, and you hear like, and like a woman. I forgot who the who's the who's the woman. The main it's someone fairly famous. Is it like Leah Sadu or someone? I will look that up really really quick. Um, Keep on going. Whoever you know, whoever his companion is in the movie, it's like there's like this very notable scene where she gets like sucked out of the airplane as it crashes, and it's just like again totally silently, just like what. And like it's it's very it's a very bizarre mishap, and the fact that they overreacted to it instead of just rolling with the punches, mm-hmm. which would have, as we know now, I mean it wasn't that long ago, but as we know now, you make a mistake, just fucking own it. Like it, 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 your reaction, their reaction to it to try to wipe it off the fucking face of the internet just made it that much funnier. Oh, of course, of course. And once it's like, they still like, have to realize like once it's out there, it's out there. It's yep. never going away, you know. And is it uh, Sophia Butella or Annabelle Wallace? Annabelle Wallace. Um, Annabelle Wallace. Okay, yeah. gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. So the um, so- Sophia Butella yeah. is the mummy. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yes, you bet. Yeah. So like, yeah, dude. They really need to uh, learn. Once it's out there, it's out there, and you don't really do damage you just kind of roll with it or release the trailer that should have been released or something like just what a uh, absolute botching of they that entire thing you if know? they really were savvy they would have had like tom cruise and annabelle wallace like sort of like hey everyone sorry about that but then like had someone else do their voices <laughs> you, know, you know like if they were really savvy about it just to make it you know again it, right. it's, it's already happened you might as well get in on the joke yeah, that's exactly right. Exactly, dude. For fucking sure, man. Like, I, um, God, that's taking me back. I, I, cause I remember some of the outrage and all the, the memes and stuff like that, but I'm, yeah, I'm not going to watch the trailer, but, uh, yeah, it's, um, what a really just interesting way to go in this one. And I, dude, I got to tell you, in my response to this question is this was something that, nobody asked for at all. Like, I don't think anybody mm-hmm. asked for this at mm-hmm. all. Um, I feel that they made a huge mistake by casting megastars like Tom Cruise in mm-hmm. a movie like this. Uh, 
it is just way too distracting to have somebody like this in a horror movie. Like, and I know stars do horror movies, but not mega Tom Cruise stars, you know, like I just, I, I can't even for the life of me think of like if Tom Hanks has ever done horror, especially recently, like, I mean, even the, the Da Vinci code is Tom Hanks being edgy. And that's like, you know, like, I guess he's being edgy in that movie. If you want for Tom Hanks, he is, but, um, going the route of having these mega stars in it, just colossal mistake. And like Tom Cruise, just knocking it out of the park in like his sci-fi action stuff, the mission impossible movies, you know, mm. just raking in money all over the place. He doesn't really need to be anywhere in this project at all. No, and no. And I'm going to tell you the other thing. The other big mistake they did was leading off with the fucking mummy. mummy. Like what a not Dracula to, to lead off with. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Like I, no one cares about mummies. And while they did do some, at least like what appeared to be newer things from some of the footage I did see and some of the photos of the, the mummy and stuff like that. But it's just, no, you know, just no, let's not even go there with the, the, the fucking, like just doing a mummy as the first one is not the way that I would have led any of this off. And you combine all these things together. And I think you were just really setting yourself up. It's a recipe for a disaster all the way, yeah. all the way on this one. Mm-hmm. So, so let's get into the big fix here. Uh, give me the, the, the first two movies that you would use to, to build the dark universe. Give me your directors and just some information about the movies. Gotcha. Uh, so I actually did this correctly. I just did more than I had to, but it, it it's totally fine. Um, so I'm, I'm also calling this, I'm, I'm going to drop the name, the dark universe. Um, because I just, I, like, I think, it I think it sucks, but also like movie, more movie savvy people. Like it, it like, do we need universe in it? Like, do we, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it, we don't, yeah, we don't need it. And it, and it also lends yourself to direct comparison with the MCU and the right. DCEU. Like it lends yourself for better or worse to direct comparison. So I'm calling this. So actually, I made five movies, but only I only went to detail on two of them. Okay. Um, and I'm calling this the Apocalypse Saga. Nice. And I the way I did this, I reached back into what I'm doing. I am remaking and sort of reinventing, act like and using the, reusing titles from the actual um, original Universal monster movies, and the the sort of the whole general plot outline for this one. It's going to be a 1930s, 1940s uh, horror action series, more on the horror side, uh, mm-hmm. in which Hitler and the Nazis are actually a coven <laughs> of vampires being controlled nice. by Dracula. Nice. And so obviously we have to fight them. So, but it's going to be like pre-war, you know, pre-war Europe, basically. Yeah. Um, and actually the first one isn't going to be even take place in Europe. The first movie uh, what we're going to kick it off with is the, we're going to retake the, um, I've got to find it here real quickly. We're going to redo the 1932 movie, The Island of Lost Souls, which was an adaptation of The Island of Dr. Moreau. Um, And I'm going to sort of, um, I'm going to change it a little bit so it's an origin story for the Wolfman. Um, This movie is going to be directed by Guillermo del Toro because there's going to be a lot of fucking creatures um, on this Island of Lost Souls. Um, As, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with The Island Island of Dr. Moreau and if anyone else out there is not. Um, you know, it is about a, a doctor creating like human animal hybrids and all sorts of like animal experiments. Um, yeah. so it feels kind of like it's a good spot to sort of re 
reinvent what the Wolfman is. So mm-hmm. we're gonna we're still gonna start with some of the same characters, Edward Parker, um, but we're gonna have uh, we're gonna have him get shipwrecked on the island, which I think is actually in the original as well. Um, I haven't decided yet if I want him to be sort of shipwrecked because of something from the war, like i.e. he was like on the Lusitania. And right. his, you know, you know, his his body washes up on the shores of it or whatever. But mm-hmm. we could tie it directly in if we wanted to do that. Um, I, I think that might be the way to go. Um, so anyway, Edward Parker ends up on the on the island like the original. But however, he is unwittingly before he kind of comes to already been experimented on by Moreau. Um, so Moreau's experiments are what make him into the Wolfman. Um, yeah. You know, along with all the, all the other hybrids that are on the island. But basically. Um, once, uh, once Edward, Edward learns how to, um, kind of control his wolfman nature, at least to some degree, he, we're actually going to cast him as a heroic figure. Um, okay. and he's going to end up fighting, you know, Dr. Moreau and his like hordes of weird human hybrids that are protecting him. And, you know, he's going to, he's going to essentially destroy the island and free the, free the, um, the, the experiments that don't want to be there. And, you know, so they can get off the island. Um, we're going to have, um, I don't know, there's got to be some kind of like failed attempt for him to get off the island on a ship or something. Because this is going to lead into the second movie. Um, his, you know, the boat that he's on sinks while he's out at sea. So he's just kind of adrift until another boat picks him up. And it's kind of crewed by a mysterious person, um, you know, with an, an enigmatic captain with a very mysterious crew. And that captain will be Captain Abraham Van Helsing, um, who picks him up out in the ocean somewhere and kind of tells you know parker kind of tells him his story maybe we'll even start with parker on the boat telling him the story and you know van helsing will say like well you know oddly enough i've been looking for this island for a long time and you know van helsing kind of fills him in like hey i i was coming there to kill all of you by the way um this is kind of what we do and you know parker kind of tells him like hey by the way i'm one of his experiments and van helsing says great then you'll work out fine for what we have coming on what we have going next so we're going to sort of this is going to be the origin story for the Wolfman and also for the quote unquote, the first movie in a building block of like a team up that we're going to, that we're going to do to take down Dracula and all of his uh, vampire Nazis. Nice. So that's the first movie. Um, Island of Lost Souls directed by Guillermo del Toro. The second movie is going to be a little bit different. Um, it's going to be a little bit more on the action side, but certainly is going to have some really good horror stuff. Um, and this, the second movie is called the invisible agent. Um, which Ooh. is a movie from, I want to let me find it real quickly here, 1942, is The Invisible Agent. Um, you can already guess where this is going, but whatever, I'll explain it anyway. So mm-hmm. this is going to be the first building block to the monster resistance, um, to the, what I'm just going to call them the Vampire Reich. So like we're going to kind of begin building the team here in this movie um, after we kind of more clearly define what the enemy is. And we're going to have the Wolfman and Van Helsing essentially kill the Invisible Man. So Parker and Van Helsing make their way to pre-war London, probably like 1934, 35 at this point, something like that. Um, <clears throat> when Van Helsing gets back, because he's been out at sea looking for this island, it's, you know, so it's at this point in time, he's probably been gone for like, you know, possibly a couple years, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right? Van Helsing gets back and, you know, he finds that his trusted sources in London are being picked off one by one in absolutely brutal fashion. Like they're being tortured, strangled, beaten to death. Some of them are actually being killed in broad daylight, but somehow with no witnesses to actually what happened. Um, obviously, it's the Invisible Man is killing all these people. Um, right. We're going to take the Invisible Man from the original movie, um, uh, Dr. Jack Griffin. He is working on behalf of the Nazis. Um, and he's doing this because 
the process by which he makes himself invisible. We could it can be a, probably a chemical process. That's what it was originally. Um, you know, the chemical process is driving him insane, and like it's also painful. I, I'm actually kind of thinking one one movie element that the the 2000 the really bizarre rapey one from 2000 um, that Paul Verhoeven made. I think it was Paul Verhoeven. Yeah, Paul Verhoeven made. Um, the one thing that they did that they did right in that was show like the physical transformation of Kevin Bacon, like yeah. his skin disappearing and the muscle and shit. I'm kind of Im- imagining like let's make it like that, but even like more horrific. Like yeah. clearly, the, you know, the Doctor Griffin is in pain when this happens, and it just drives him more and more crazy. So he kind of has a deal cut with Dracula, like, hey, you know, I can, I can probably heal you, but you know, you need to get us information, and that information is on something that Van Helsing. And his good friend, Dr. Frankenstein, had been working on um, that they're keeping hidden somewhere in London. Um, so basically, the, the synopsis of this movie is the vampire Nazis want Frankenstein's monster for their own uses. But Parker, the Wolfman, Van Helsing um, are going to stop Griffin, the Invisible Man. And there's going to be Nazi vampires in this one. They're going to stop them from awakening uh, Frankenstein's monster and claiming him from their side. Ooh, very, very nice, dude. Hell yeah. I, lo- I gotta say, I love the fucking time period element of this whole thing. I think that that's great, and especially tying it in together with the Nazis. Like, do you want to just give me a reason to, like, go to the theater to hate somebody and watch them be defeated? Like, it's that right there, definitely. Yeah, I was I was trying to, I, I, like I said, I wanted to keep it out of the Victorian era stuff. I just, like, it just, that is just so much less interesting to me, and I needed something to tie it against. I suppose we could even do this against World War One. If you wanted to, but I think giving a very overt evil element to it kind of like, of course, the vampires would be on Hitler's side, right? Like, right. It just makes sense. So you could tie this to World War One. I. I thought World War Two would would be a little bit more interesting. Um, so that's the Invisible Agent directed by Christopher McQuarrie, who is actually directed Tom Cruise in a bunch of those um, Mission Impossible movies. And then I'll just go. I'll just go real quickly through the last ones that I, I put together here. So the next one would be House of Dracula, um, which is the original is from. Let me find it again. The original House of Dracula is from 1945, um, and we're actually going to spell this one House H A U S. So you know that it's German, and it'll yeah. be kind of the first deeper look into the Vampire Reich, how Dracula came back, you know, how he took over the Nazi Party, and like what his plans are moving forward. And then we'll follow it up. We'll have a, we'll have a, we'll have a, oddly enough, I'm actually going to go into mummy territory. Um, the next movie will be The Mummy's Tomb, which is from, the original is from, god damn, this list is so fucking long, 1942, The Mummy's Tomb. Mm. And in that one, we're going to have the vampire Reich killing their way through North Africa to find the ultimate source of evil, the tomb of Akhenaten. And then we'll wrap up with the final confrontation in The Mummy's Curse. The Vampire Reich versus Vampire Reich and the Mummy versus Wolfman Frankenstein and Van Helsing and all his people. Winner takes the planet. Oh hell yeah, man! Hell yeah, dude! I love that. I love totally relevant there with the you know with it being in Egypt and North Africa and stuff like that the, with the Nazis and everything like that. That makes perfect sense. It's a perfect fit. Sorry, take a sip of water. Um, yeah, it, it, it was it was one of those things. I'm like, okay, if I'm going to tie this into Nazis then it would only make sense to actually, I mean, the, you know, Erwin uh, Rommel and his whole campaign in North Africa, it would kind of make sense to go ahead and then dip into the mummy stuff. Yeah, without a doubt, dude, for sure. It, like, it fits organically and stuff. It's not like you're just 
deciding to kick off a major franchise with the money. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely none of that stuff, you know? And um, yeah, I got to say like that works totally well. Yeah. It makes all the sense in the world that the the vampires and everything would be sided with the Nazis like 100%. Mm. So there you go. The, the apocalypse saga, I'm sure we can think of a better name if we wanted to for the whole (laughs) thing, but um, it's still better than the dark universe, but that, that's what I would go about doing with, uh, you know, if gift given the chance. Oh, hell yeah, man. Very, very nice. Good selection. I love it. Mine is going to be more in like a modern setting. I'm going to just tell you right off the bat that it's a um, I'm going to be doing Dracula as a starter, then going into Frankenstein. Okay. I'm um, assigning the vampire director, um, Parker Finn. He's the guy who directed Smile. Mm. If Smile is any good as people are making it out to be this guy's going to have a bright future in the world of horror and the second movie the frankenstein movie i'm going to have directed by robert eggers which um he's doing nosferatu that's going to be his next project interesting yeah i could some like i'm very intrigued by it i definitely am i will be there in the theater to check it out i for some reason, I just think Frankenstein would be something that'd be a little bit more better suited for him. Um, I am going to assume that his Nosferatu movie, I'm sure, will be awesome and classic and original in some way, shape, or form, and definitely worthy of me going to the theater. Mm-hmm. But I just see Frankenstein being a little bit more in his wheelhouse, and I think he could have a little bit more fun with um with like Frankenstein, it just seems like that'd be something that he would some something that'd just be more in his wheelhouse, in my opinion, and everything. I, um, I, under, I understand I, exactly what you mean. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's it's hard to explain, but you know what I'm saying. Awesome. And then um, my other movies would be I was actually going to put the werewolf and the creature from the Black Lagoon together, and then I was going to close out with the mummy and kind of like you know have the whole kind of universe come together in like the the final film. However, it uh, yeah. The to come together in like the final film and everything like that so starting off with um the vampire movie i'm no joke this is just going to be simply in a modern day setting um geared into geared into in line of like a takeover so to speak like i I not necessarily like not to say like the phrase apocalypse because you just said it but i'm kind of thinking more in along the lines of like the strain where the vampires are out there to like conquer us. You know, they don't want to turn everybody into vampires, but there is a goal and desire to like have humans be conquered basically for the, the sake of like turning us all into, you know, lunches and, and everything like that. <laughs> so the Dracula character is going to be the lead character of the evil corporation. And like, I can't decide exactly how I want this medium to like the vampire thing to like spread where I don't know if I'm going to have it be like Dracula with like an army or if it's going to be like one guy that kind of like sparks this chain of events that like leads into more vampires being created type Mm. thing. And like, what I'm thinking about centering the lead character on is a um, somebody who is bitten by Count Dracula, and like he's the guy that is almost like a patient zero type character that's going. You know, it's like you your choice is to either feed and become something evil, or 
reject the whole thing and just kind of like die, get killed, whatever. There'll be like an external threat from Dracula in some way, shape or form. And the main character is out there in the world and like he's struggling to make this decision, struggling to feed sort of like how uh, Brad Pitt's character was doing an interview with a vampire. Like originally he was like hesitant on like feeding on humans and stuff and was eating rats and shit like that. So like, I kind of want the character to like, have this dilemma of like doing like what is right. Like I need to like learn how to make like the right decision and everything. And like in the end of the first one, um, he is going to decide not to do it. You know, that's going to be his struggle and everything. And he dies, you know, he just, he, he dies. He's like the, the main character dies doing the right thing. And then Dracula decides to meet with a guy named Victor Frankenstein at the end of the movie, who is a, in this case, a VC venture capitalist who is like looking to share in Dracula's kind of vision of the world where everything is monsters and everything is vampires and all that kind of stuff. And then Mm -hmm. in the second one, what we do is we have Victor Frankenstein kind of like working on this project for the vamp for the the vampires while creating a Frankenstein monster. And like the Frankenstein monster becomes the major plot of the second movie and everything. And it's honestly like, I want to do something very, very similar to the original story, just in a modern setting. Like the monster falls in love with Victor's wife. Victor has to like take the monster down, but he's also like, he's confronted with this dilemma of the monster while also facing the dilemma that he's now like, trying to like build this thing for count Dracula to thus take over the world. So the thing of Dracula and everybody becoming vampires is kind of like an underlying thread throughout the course of the entire dark universe, like something that they revisit and something to then bring back into the last installment of the movie when things go all out. And like Dracula would be like this guy, like it's almost like the Thanos thing. Like Dracula is this guy trying to get something that he could use that has a, a great power to change everybody into vampires, you know, keep humans as like a, uh, some humans as like a feeding supply, that kind of stuff, like how they do in the strain. So the um, Frankenstein monster movie will go very similar to like a Frankenstein movie and almost be like a standout kind of movie in and out of itself with this underlying thread. So by the end of the movie, um, Victor Frankenstein has destroyed himself along with the monster like he kind of has like a change of heart about um about even like the project and working with the vampires in general and it sets up the third movie with like the werewolf where he will meet some guy in the the, dracula maybe comes back at the end of the second movie and meets the guy who will ultimately be the werewolf which changes into the third carries it to the third movie then we have the creature of the black lagoon in there too in the third movie and then we bring it back to like mummies and stuff like that in the uh, last installment of the movie where the the idea of the vampires and these monsters taking over the world blows the fuck up i dig it i'd like this idea of um i like this idea of the the kind of the ultimate evil being not even like hidden in plain sight just in plain sight as like a corporate entity and sort of at the background until like it needs to be until like it would until it doesn't need to be in the background anymore i like that right yeah that's exactly what i want to go with kind of like one of these movies that are about like really like 
finding the good in humanity and thus like deciding not to destroy it. Like I want characters to kind of realize that there is some good in the world still like go with that whole route and using the idea of somebody tasked to do something bad, but becoming good. Like I just, you know, I, I just think that that is something universal that a lot of people can relate to. And, you know, it won't be something that is, the story through all of the movies and everything is that we're just be looking at five movies of the same character, but in a different situation. But I do want, like, I do want this like awakening of like, yeah, it is an evil world out there, but like what some of these evil guys are planning to do is a lot worse than what we have. Right. Right. Exactly. I, I dig it. I dig it. I think, um, by the way, I think both of ours are much better suited as series. I gotcha. Very I gotcha. simply. I mean, I, I just am thinking about this, and there's, like, the evil corporation kind of stuff could could even be in the background of every single episode. Just, like, a little, mm-hmm. like, a little pickup here. You know, like, you could focus one season mostly on, um, you know, on on Victor Frankenstein if you want. With, like, the, right. you know, every, every episode where we're going to check in with, you know, um, you know, Dracula INC. Um, just right. in some way, shape, or form. Not, you know, it won't be overt necessarily, but just like a slight check-in in some way, shape, or form. Oh, definitely, dude. And like, when it comes to the evil corporations and everything, like that, that is going to be something that is prominent in reality from net, from fucking a hundred some years ago till the end of God. Ever since corporations were founded until the end of goddamn time, these yep. things are going to be evil and wicked and. Uh, Hopefully people eventually realize that and maybe stop voting for people that uh, are pro-corporation in so many ways. Well, that's all of them. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, I hate to tell you that right. that's everyone. Um, <laughs> everyone's pro-corporation. Um, <laughs> except for except for all the people who get crushed. But anyway. That's true. Yeah, that's very, very true. So that's going to wrap it up for this uh, first episode of... Uh, oh, real, real quickly, oh. the only the only one I couldn't figure out how to work in um, was The Creature from the Black Lagoon. And the, like, not for lack... By the way, not for lack of trying. But, like, I I feel like that could... I feel like the... Um, I feel like the, the Creature from the Black Lagoon is one of those things, if you were to sort of successfully kick off um, you know, had the had the actual dark universe worked, that would it feels like the creature from the Black Lagoon is like legit like phase two kind of stuff. Just yeah, it's just hard to sort of wedge that that character in into where everything else fits. No, dude, I I totally got you. And like the creature from the Black Lagoon, like looked awesome. Like oh, I, yeah. I just oh, yeah. the, the design of it was awesome, but like. I don't know, when you see some of these older clips of the creature from the Black Lagoon and him just, like, wrecking stuff and everything, there's not a lot of dimension there, you know? So, like, the movie would almost be, like, the character would almost be sort of like a henchman-type thing or something, like, for spectacle that kind of shows up in, like, the middle of a... In the middle of, like, a second act in, like, a couple of movies that maybe in the second phase gets more attention. But, like, I, I think that because it is as one dimensional as it is, you have to do a little bit of a buildup before giving that particular piece of intellectual property its own standalone thing, you know, because like you, if you're looking at like what a modern day movie of that would look like, 
it'd probably be something hunting or science gone wrong, something like that. You know, maybe the creature from the Black Lagoon is terrorizing a certain area of the country. But I, I feel that even in a creature from the Black Lagoon movie, we might not get that much creature from the Black Lagoon just because there's really not much you could do with that character. You're right. And like the the thing that I came up with that sort of would make the most, in my storyline anyway, would make the most sense was sort of a um, um, sort of a Hunt for Red October-esque sort of yeah. like, to, not even necessarily submarines, but like, you know, like an allied ship pursuing a Nazi ship. Um, you know, to an you know to an island, someplace isolated, right. and like they're you know they're we're doing battle there, and then and then the creatures of the Black Lagoon, not really a force for good or evil, just a force, and yeah, they ha- you know they have to survive it basically, Nazis and allies alike. Yeah, definitely, definitely. It, it just doesn't like, fit in to you know what I mean. Like it just like okay, great, but like where does that fit in with anything else? Right. Oh yeah, exactly. Like. I'm, God, I'm kind of leaning towards like I think one of the best creatures from the Black Lagoon things ever might be that white monster that made an appearance in the X Files. Like that might be the best use of a creature from the Black Lagoon s type character ever. Right, right, yeah. You, you know, it's just so hard. Like that would that is something that is such a sample of the time. Like, yeah, I totally get why the creature from the Black Lagoon was popular back in the day, but so hard to do right now. Yeah, you know, it, mm-hmm. if it was one of these, like somebody changing into the creature from the black lagoon so we get somebody who like experienced something and now they're changing into this that might be Maybe. a little bit yeah more of a way to go but even still uh, you're probably in a modern day setting you're probably looking at uh somebody changing and then there's somebody else changing into another creature from the black lagoon and they fight and they, yeah it's just I don't think that that one monster is enough to carry a whole movie. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That's just where I came down on it. I'm like, you know what? Rather double down on Dracula, rather double down on the other ones than try to wedge in a, a Black Lagoon storyline. Yeah, that's a good move. Double down when double down when you can, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> awesome, dude. Well, that's going to bring mm. uh, this first episode of Fright Fest 4, Monster Mash, to its conclusion, unless you had anything else. Nothing else. Just this was a lot of fun to put together. I'm really excited to dive into the rest of this month. Hell yeah, dude. So we're going to do um, The Fly next week. Um, got an outline pretty much ready to go on that. And then uh, we'll dig, dig into The Lost Boys as our uh, Keeping It in the 80s Monster Movie Month. Like it. I dig it. It's going to be a lot of fun. Awesome, dude. So go ahead and uh, lead us out of here and we'll call it a day. All right. Thanks, everyone, for downloading, listening. Um, make sure you send us some reviews. Uh, comment on our on our Facebook page, on our Instagram page. Um, do all that stuff. Um, that definitely helps out. Uh, but for Adam Chemalewski, this is Matt Pagel. We are the Occasionalists, and we will see you next week uh, as the Monster Mash uh, continues during our Fright Fest 2022. Peace out, everyone. See you next time.